Hello, Sean here. Welcome back to a new episode of Dilettantry, and welcome to a new series. The series is going to be looking at caves, focusing on ancient cave art, but like always, going all over the place. And this episode is going to start very similar to episode 1.19, also very similar to that viral Twitter thread I wrote last year about caves, but it will quickly veer into new territory. Um, I'll, I'll put a timestamp in the description, so don't be dissuaded if you're like, I think I've heard this before, in other words. <laughs> okay, and with that, let's descend into the caves. you've seen cave art before. Likely recreations, sketches in books or online, or flash photography in books or online. Or if you're very lucky, you've gone to one of those caves yourself with a flashlight, or maybe the cave was lit already by electric light because it became a popular spot for tourists. Whatever. The point is, I'm guessing most of you listening right now can imagine an approximation of what these cave paintings and etchings looked like, right? Usually the subject is one or many of various creatures. Or maybe you have in mind those cool South American cave paintings of dozens of hands stretched open. If you don't know the reference, I'm talking about Cueva de las Manos, Spanish for Cave of Hands in Argentina. It's, it's really cool, painted 9 to 13,000 years ago. It's pretty interesting and kind of metaphorical. Human depictions in prehistoric cave art are pretty rare. And when they do appear, it's often a half-human, half-animal, called a therianthrope, or maybe a human merely dressed up as an animal. But the question I want to ask right now, the question I've been building up to, is, is it possible that all these modern views of cave art are misleading? Views here not meaning understanding, but literal views, vision. Is it possible that flash photography, electric lights, and recreated drawings for books and websites hide a key element of cave art? A scholar named Edward Wachtell thinks so. Wachtell wrote a very interesting paper in 1993 looking at cave art in southern France and northern Spain, specifically the caves of Lesseau, Font de Gomme, Lamouth, and Les Combarelles. I'm just saying the names in case you want to Google them. You don't have to remember them. The paintings in the first two are estimated to be 17,000 years old, the time between us and Jesus multiplied by 8.5. The paintings at Les Combarelles are more recent, 13,000 to 11,000 years before the present. I couldn't find dating for the last one, Lemuth. But before we get into Wachtel's observations, we have to get something straight. Since the late 1800s, our understanding of prehistoric people has been so tied to caves that we started calling them cavemen. It's almost like we have an image of humanity emerging from the depths, being born from the womb of the earth itself. This is actually a pretty common type of origin myth, or creation story worldwide, called emergence stories. But the reason we have this notion of cavemen probably originated with the 1865 book Prehistoric Times, as illustrated by ancient remains and the manners and customs of modern savages 
by Sir John Lubbock. Another one of those old books with a very catchy title, very succinct. Lubbock came to this conclusion because in some European caves, some bones and stone tools were found. But, of course, people write books all the time, right? The reason that this caveman idea became so ingrained in popular consciousness is because Lubbock's book came out at around the time that Darwin was developing and publishing his theory of evolution. So, right when a secular idea was created that said that humans were animals that evolved from shared ancestors with other animals, in other words, right when a new idea about the history and origin of humanity was in vogue, people became interested and very focused on what these prehistoric humans lived like, and they latched on to the caveman idea, since it too was in vogue at the time. Our ancestors weren't Adam and Eve, they were a bunch of monkey people chilling in caves. This image of hairy, scantily clad, grunting people holding clubs and living in caves became the quick way to show humanity's ancestors, and it was reinforced through the over 150 cavemen movies and TV shows in the 20th century. But, as it turns out, evidence for prehistoric humans using caves to live in is kind of lacking. Only in the 90s was the relationship between caves and humans reinterpreted and accepted broadly among archaeologists. But before we get into what exactly this reinterpretation looked like, there's one more piece of the puzzle. We have to clarify what's meant by the term cave. Because there's a problem with the way we use the word cave. And, well, maybe not problem, more of like an imprecision. It's probably another reason for the longevity and popularity of the caveman idea. The problem is that the word cave is used colloquially to describe a variety of structures. There is evidence that prehistoric humans lived in what are called rock shelters in archaeology. Often people called these caves, but rock shelters are just rock formations that provide shelter. <laughs> Sorry for the redundant definition, uh, but it's like an indent in a cliff or rocks jutting out of a cliff face, that sort of thing. An important characteristic of rock shelters is that they are still lit by daylight, as opposed to many caves that become completely dark if you go in far enough. In fact, scholars often divide up caves based on the light situation, splitting them into three zones, the light zone, the twilight zone, and the dark zone. Splitting them up into zones in this way really provides clarity, because even the mouths of caves were used for habitation by prehistoric people, but the dark zones were very rarely used. Um, only, only if there was like extreme weather, like a snowstorm, or like an army marching towards people. That's, that's when people would hide in dark zones, but it was very rarely used to live in. I've been to Turkey before, and in Turkey, there's a town called Nevşehir, and by the town, there's a cave city that you can go in. It's like a thousand years old, and was used by the people living there to hide while foreign armies invaded. There are eight stories, and thousands of people could live there. Something I found funny is that it was super bare bones, obviously, since it was only used in dire circumstances, but they still made sure to include two wineries. Um, this brings up another issue, too. More recent man-made cave structures like this one are talked about sometimes just as caves, kind of erasing or lessening the distinction between them and older natural caves. 
So, to summarize, people did sometimes live in light zones of caves and rock shelters, but they rarely lived deeper inside caves, in the dark or twilight zones. What they did in the dark zones, though, is a lot more interesting and a lot more mysterious. Humans in many cultures and in many corners of the world descended into the depths for reasons often associated with spirits and magic and art and ritual. So there's some questions then to ponder when it comes to cave art. Like what exactly was the purpose of going into these very dark, often very hard to access and dangerous places to paint and sketch? Even if they wanted to use the combination of art and cave for some sort of ritual, why not just paint on portable rocks and carry the rocks in rather than having to haul torches and all these materials that you need for art deep into the caves? These are good questions, but pretty obvious ones. However, if you take a careful look at certain cave etches and paintings, even more questions arise. In those four caves that he visited in the 90s, in northern Spain and southern France, the scholar Edward Wachtel kept noticing that the images had some strange characteristics, some characteristics that aren't really talked about too much in you know, your basic textbooks about cave art. And these characteristics seem fairly widespread to me. I'm not sure how widespread they are across the globe, but it's definitely... Definitely a thing, not just in these four caves. The first of these peculiar characteristics that Wachtel noticed was that many of the images on the cave walls have what are called spaghetti engravings. This strengthens what scholars call the Paleolithic Pan-Italian Hypothesis. JK, JK. Um, what spaghetti engravings are is, you know, th there'll be an animal, let's say an antelope, etched on a cave wall. But on top of it are a bunch of roughly parallel lines, like a bunch of vertical lines, some diagonal ones. The lines definitely obscure the image a fair bit, but in all cases it seems like care was taken not to destroy the image entirely. It's not like some paleolithic juvenile delinquents are just going around fucking up people's art or anything. It seems a little bit more deliberate, right? So that's weird, but it gets weirder. Another of the characteristics Wachtel noted was that there are many examples of superposition, things drawn on top of each other that aren't just lines. There's an ibex with two heads, one bent close to the ground like it's eating grass, and the other looking over its shoulder like, like it senses a predator or something. There's a mammoth with two or three trunks. There are other examples of animals with extra body parts. Another example is a drawing of a bull superimposed on a drawing of a deer. And it's not like the caves were so crowded with art that they had to draw things on top of each other. No, again, this was deliberate for some reason. So Edward Watchtell was pondering these questions as he visited the caves, 
He seemed to be sort of gathering questions rather than answers, as he hoped. It wasn't until he got to Lamuth Cave that it all clicked. The upkeep and infrastructure at Lamuth was less well-funded than the other French caves. Uchtal was brought there not by a government official or scientist or anything, but a local farmer. There were no electric lights in the cave like the other ones he had visited. The farmer just brought a lantern. Under the lantern's flickering light, Wachtel saw the caves in a new way. In a new light, you could say. The images in the caves were meant to be in three dimensions. Roughly two dimensions of space and one of time. The flickering movement of the flame allowed the art to move. It allowed the figures and shapes on the walls to exist in time, rather than just extracted from it. Decades prior, Siegfried Gideon hypothesized this, writing, quote, Nothing is more destructive of the true values of primeval art than the glare of electric light in this realm of eternal night. Flares or small stone lamps burning animal fat of which examples have been found, permit one to obtain only fragmentary glimpses of the colors and lines of the objects depicted. In such a soft, flickering light, these take on an almost magical movement. The engraved lines and even the colored surfaces lose their intensity under a strong light and sometimes disappear altogether. Only in this way can the fine veining of the drawings be seen unsmothered by their rough background. Maybe enough has now been said to show that prehistoric humans did not associate the caverns with architecture. In their view, the caverns simply provided them with places that they could use for their magic arts. They selected these places with the utmost care. Unquote. The flickering movement of fire, the only source of light for the prehistoric artists in the dark zones of the caves, was integral to the art itself. The movement of fire combined with the rough rock that provides a surface for the paintings made the paintings themselves move. In a certain way, prehistoric people had invented animation, or the movie. They descended to the depths to watch movies. Of course, animations or GIFs are probably more accurate examples than movies, but Watchtel uses the cinema as his metaphor because he's following Lewis Mumford, who, in 1934, quoting Watchtel, said that film, with its moving camera, its cuts and superimpositions, displays time and motion in a unique way. Additionally, he linked film's display of time and space to what he called the emergent worldview of the 20th century, unquote. I think Watchtel is trying to highlight that this new worldview of the 20th century is maybe not so new after all, something we talked about in episode 1.31. The most famous piece of art in Lamuth Cave is a three-foot-high drawing of what some people think is a hut and some people think is an animal trap. 
It has spaghetti engravings drawn all over it. This was one of the first images that Watchtel realized was animated, or a proto-movie. He got the farmer to swing the lantern around a bit while standing in front of it. This is Watchtel's description of what he saw, and he uses the word tectiform, which is a very specific word meaning a piece of Paleolithic cave art that represents a dwelling or a house. I don't know, I don't know why somebody thought that that was a necessary word to make up, but whatever. <laughs> this is Watchtel's description of what he saw when the farmer swung his lantern around in front of the tectiform. Quote, as he moved the light, I saw the colors of the tectiform begin to shift. When the lamp arced to the left, the blacks faded, the browns became red, and the red intensified. When the light moved to the right, the pattern reversed, creating a shifting color scheme. Moreover, the engraved lines under and around the tectiform became animated. Suddenly, the head of one creature stood out clearly. It lived for a second, then faded as another appeared. The spaghetti lines were no longer a confused two-dimensional pattern. Rather, they became a forest or a bramble patch that concealed and then revealed the animals within. Unquote. The antelope with two heads and the dance of the firelight is an antelope moving from grazing to looking for predators. The mammoth with two or three trunks becomes a mammoth in motion, swinging its trunk. The bull superimposed over the deer becomes a deer transforming into a bull, then back again. Is it possible that these drawings were used as practice for hunting? As a way to teach new hunters how to spot animals in the grasses and brambles? Or as a way for old hunters to maintain their skills? Or maybe these proto-films were just simply enjoyable to watch, and the content was simply something from daily life, one of the more exciting elements of daily life. Or did they incorporate these proto-films into their rituals, into their cosmologies, using the power that humans have, creativity and technology, to bring the animals to life in the depths once again, to resurrect the beings that their lives revolve around, incorporating them into the rituals that may have involved chanting, drumming, hallucinations, shamanism, psychedelic drugs? A recent paper by Andy Needham Izzy Wisher, Andrew Langley, Matthew Amy, and Amy Little. <laughs> Sorry, maybe I shouldn't list all their names next time. Whatever. They've investigated the possibility that Paleolithic stone plaquettes were also used to move in the firelight. Plaquettes are like plaques, you know, rocks that you move around. In fact, this is a pretty big distinction in prehistoric art studies often uh, between wall art or parietal art, if you want to be fancy, and portable art, like these plaquettes. These plaquettes that were investigated by Needham et al. were found in the Montastruc rock shelter in southern France, dating between 16,000 and 13,500 years ago, so made by what are called the Magdalenian people, the culture of the people living in Western Europe in the Mesolithic and Upper Paleolithic. What the Magdalenian people did specifically to these plaquettes was etch images of animals on both sides, mostly of horses and reindeer, but also a wolf, birds, and some other hoofed mammals, like deer and ibex. Often, these plaquettes would have quite a jumble of figures and lines, like the spaghetti lines, but not just straight, sometimes swirling around and whirlpooling. 
some of them, and unfortunately they're less talked about than the wall art, of course, um, but some of them are quite, quite incredible to look at. The plaquettes investigated by this team all had something in common, evidence that they had been exposed to heat. The interesting part is that all the other artifacts found in the cave don't have evidence that they were exposed to heat. So the authors of the study hypothesized that these plaquettes were routinely placed around the campfire, kind of like TVs or something, or a moving art gallery. The way they investigated this is really complicated, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. They made 3D models of the plaquettes and then used virtual reality modeling to simulate how Firelight would dance in the plaquettes. The modeling showed that, yes, Firelight did create the effect of movement, making one's eyes catch on one figure, then another. They compared the likelihood that the heating of the plaquettes was for this purpose with some other hypotheses for their heating, and found it to be the most likely scenario. Just like with the art on the cave walls, combining rough or complex surfaces with painting or engraving and flickering light creates dynamism, movement, time. They also go into how the natural form of the rock often merges with the human art. The prehistoric artists were very conscious of the surfaces they drew upon, often utilizing features in the rock as parts of the figures. A crack for a leg, a large divot for a torso, that kind of thing. The flickering of light further blurred these features. So maybe it's a mistake to say that the cave art was meant to be in three dimensions, two of space and one of time. Maybe it's better to say that it was all four dimensions. Cave art wasn't just art, it was the use of a peculiar natural environment to create a fully new type of space, spherical four-dimensional life of beasts summoned by the skilled hand of the artist, which was perhaps a form of magic itself for them, before any connection to the magic of hunting rituals or shamanism. prolific researcher on animation in Paleolithic contexts, especially cave art, is this guy named Mark Azema. He's written a PhD thesis and some books on the subject. Unfortunately, they're in French, and only bits and pieces of his work are translated, and I'm a bad Canadian. His thesis was on movement in French cave art, so a little broader than the animation we've been talking about using something called an ethological approach, where you use the science of animal behavior to get a better understanding of the cave art, since, you know, animals were largely the subjects. Movement can be the stuff like watch, tell, observe, but also stuff like if an animal's clearly running, that's expressing movement, that sort of thing. But Azema gets to firelight animation eventually, so let's see how he gets there and what more he's uncovered beyond Watchtel and Gideon. Azema thinks that movement of animals is a key part of understanding the animal, especially in the Paleolithic contexts where the animals were not domesticated. It's hard enough to make your dog sit still when taking a photo of her with a funny hat on, so of course before domestication it was even harder. The animals were likely more often than not seen while in motion, while running away, of the animal representations Zema studied, 3,763 
of 400-634 of them were clear enough to identify the species of animal within a specific degree of certainty, something important for his ethological methodology, and 41% of those identifiable representations involved movement of either the whole animal or a part of it, like the mammoth's trunk. Something interesting in his analysis is that he says that this movement is typically depicted in one of two ways. Quote, they would have developed two processes for breaking up movement, decomposition by superimposition of successive images, and decomposition by juxtaposition of successive images. Unquote. Very wordy way of describing it. Um, the first method, decomposition by superimposition of successive images. That's just a fancy way of describing the method Watchtel observed superimpositions, meaning superimposed, where a mammoth would have three trunks superimposed, overlapping, or a bison would have eight legs superimposed, overlapping. Azamus says, summarizing his findings, quote, this generates a kind of graphic blur in the most naturalistic representations, such as a reindeer at St. Eulalie or an ibex at the Abri du Colombier, the different versions of the head, up to five for the horses of the passage and the nef at Lasso, the legs, eight on a bison of the secteur de chevaux at Chauvet, and the tail, two to three on the bisons of the sanctuaire de trois frères, are generally placed in positional opposition, legs set on ground slash in extension, head raised slash lowered, tail hanging slash raised, this process is in evidence throughout the Upper Paleolithic on dozens of figures, 53, that is 3.5% of the animated figures, all species together. They are found in Perigord, the Pyrenees, Quercy, and the Ardèche, but it is at Lesseau that we have counted the most. Almost always equines, or horses. The Magdalenian objects and the wall art of the Iberian Peninsula provide other clear examples. Thus, the artists of prehistory, or at least certain individuals whose talents were above average, would have invented or at least sensed the modern concept of animated drawing. Unquote. Now, of course, I mentioned that there were two types of animated drawing that Azema detailed. The other method, decomposition by juxtaposition of successive images, is rarer, but just to quickly explain it, it means depicting movement by having multiple images that don't overlap, no superposition. Um, kind of like comic panels, but without the boxes to separate the panels. One deer here, then the same deer but in a different position right in front of it, then that again. Um, that's an example from Chauvet. Rather than the logic of an animation, it's the logic of a comic strip. The rest of Azema's thesis isn't very interesting for our purposes, but Azema continued studying prehistoric art after getting his PhD, and in 1991, he hypothesized and analyzed a new type of Paleolithic animation that we haven't discussed yet. Then, in 2007, Azema's 1991 theory was bolstered by a study by Florent Rivere. Rivere was looking at these bone discs that had been repeatedly found in Spain and France, also from the Magdalenian. The discs were cut from shoulder blades 
of bovines or cervids, animals like cows or deer, and it usually had a hole in the center. So researchers generally interpreted them as a decoration of some sort, like on a necklace, that sort of thing. They'd been found for decades in archaeological sites, but it was only in 2007 that someone, Robert, looked at them in a new way. This is a little ironic because <laughs> this new analysis theorized that the discs weren't merely ornamental. They were in fact a prehistoric form of a toy that was really popular in the 1800s, a toy that was a precursor to the cinematic camera, a thaumatrope. Azema and Rivera teamed up, and over the next few years, found that multiple bone discs and stone plaques had been found from the Paleolithic era with two seemingly related images on either side, possibly thaumatropic sequences. I'll probably have to explain what that means, um, because a thaumatrope nowadays is very outdated. But if you're someone living in the 1800s, oh boy, your mind would have been blown. Thaumatropes are another form of proto-animation. That's a disc or something else with two sides, like those plaquettes we were talking about. And on each side, there would be a, two related but different images. If you have this, all you need is some way to spin the object really fast in a way that you see one side, then the other. If the two images are made correctly, this creates a basic form of animation, an animation of two frames. So you could animate someone looking one way, then looking the other way, something like that. It relies on this thing our eyes do called retinal persistence. I'm sure you can guess what this is, but if not, it's that image persisting in your vision for a little bit after you see it. Like I've experienced this before, especially if I'm somewhere dark and then all of a sudden there's a flash of light and the scene that was briefly exposed or just even the flash kind of stays in your eyes for a while. But it's cool. I, I always thought that was a mental thing, but it's not just mental. It's part of how you actually see. Very neat. And it's the biological thing that allows for thaumatropes to work. The modern version of the thaumatrope was invented in 1825 by John Herschel, an astronomer, and the name literally means miracle wheel. In Greek, thauma means prodigy or wonder, and tropion means turn. It was a precursor to the motion picture camera, as I mentioned. Let's take a look at some examples. Um, the first one I want to go over is that one that Azema saw in 1991. It started this whole thing off. It shows the death or injury of a deer, a traumatrope, if you will. <laughs> will you? Um, there was a sandstone plaque discovered in 1940 in a cave in southwestern France, but it wasn't until 1991 when Azema got to examine it that the possibility was raised that it was a thaumatrope. This is because on both sides a reindeer is engraved, and the engravings can be placed in a simple narrative. On one side, the reindeer is standing, but appears wounded, pierced with an arrow. And on the other side, the reindeer is lying on the ground, with their legs tucked beneath their body, possibly dead or dying. If you hold the plaque up at the base and flip it back and forth really fast, looking at one side then the other, the two images blur together with retinal persistence to create movement of the deer falling to the ground. The plaque was dated between 17,000 and 12,000 years ago. So, again, the Magdalenian culture. But Azema, as far as I can tell, was focused on these plaques, 
these sandstone plaques. It wasn't until Rivera came along that these bone discs were also brought into the discussion. These bone discs found in Spain and France, also from the Magdalenian. The discs were cut from shoulder blades of cows and deer and similar animals, and as I was saying, they usually had this hole in the center. So researchers generally interpreted them as decoration of some sort, a necklace, but this is exactly how some of the thaumatropes in the 1800s worked. There would be images on discs with holes in the middle, and you take two strings, put them through the hole, and twist them up so that when you let go, the disc would spin around really fast and look animated. In fact, some of these bone discs were found in the 1800s, just nobody really thought they were too special. Kind of funny. Another specific example is one discovered in 1868 in Dordogne. On both sides is a sequence, much like the sandstone plaque, a deer or perhaps a chamois, this, this goat deer thing, on one side standing, perhaps hit by arrows or rocks, and on the other side lying down, perhaps dead. Azema and Rivere wrote a paper together where they analyzed this in detail, talking about how the images on both sides relate to the hole in the center in the same way, and saying complicated stuff like the proportions are identical and the dorsal line works as an axis orienting both postures you know stuff that's really hard to explain vocally uh you don't have to understand what that means i'm just mentioning it to say that there's you know there's more complex arguments than just the ones that we're going to go over something else azema and Rivera did was some experimental archaeology they recreated the bone disc from the shoulder blade of a deer and recreated the drawings on both sides. And yes, it did appear animated, or as they say, it quote, produces a superimposition of the two pictures on the retina, unquote. Azema and Rivera describe more of the bone discs using the word chevron, which means a V-shaped mark, often upside down. They say, quote, other Magdalenian bone discs, whole or fragmented, seem to offer similar examples of animation. A mammoth from Dordogne has an eye that opens, circular profile, and closes, almond-shaped profile, while the mouth half opens. The artist seems to have wanted to represent the moment where the animal passes from life to death, the climax of a hunt. A set of chevrons marks the mammoth's brow, signifying the casting of a deadly projectile. Another disc found in Dordogne shows the movement of an equid, from left to right, in three successive images. An equid is a horse, by the way. At Ma d'Azil, a bone disc shows a sort of morphing, recording the passage of a young calf to adulthood in two images. Other bone discs show graphic animations based on purely geometric motifs. For example, a disc with multiple perforations generating an animation based on a succession of motifs in the form of chevrons and oblique lines, which could be expressing the trajectory of a projectile, a simple dynamic effect, or a visual hallucination." Unquote. Overall, around 200 of these Paleolithic bone discs with a hole have been found. Not all of them complete, many of them just fragments. They date from 27,000 to 12,000 years ago. 27,000 years ago is the time between us and Jesus multiplied by 13. Sorry for doing that so much. I just feel like it's a good way to underscore just how old this stuff is. 
those abstract geometric motifs Azema and Riviere mentioned. There are two types that have been found, ones that show a pattern of lines emanating from the center, and ones that show a geometric pattern of notches around the edge. Something else cool to mention from that long quote is about the discs that show a baby cow growing into an adult. We should linger on that for a moment because the other examples show movement, but this one shows time. Well, wait, I, I guess time is movement? It's, it's actually kind of interesting. One of the requirements for movement is time, right? It isn't possible to move anything unless you have time. So time is always a part of animation, but it can be erased from visual art. Like a photograph erases time. It's just a snapshot. What the photographer David Hockney called the point of view of a paralyzed cyclops. Because not only does it remove time, but it sees a scene with just one eye. But still, snapshots can incorporate movement, like the focus of Azema's early work, like a photograph of someone falling down, that's kind of incorporating movement. So a snapshot can be a snapshot of motion. It can kind of encode motion in the still shot, but for movement proper to exist, time is a requirement. So when time is reincorporated into art, with flickering firelight or with spinning thaumatropes, movement proper can exist in the art. But in the case of the bone disc thaumatrope showing a young cow growing old, this incorporation of time, this movement, can also allow for the representation of time, like a different time, in this case a lifetime. The time incorporated into the art, the time that allows for the thaumatrope to show one side than the other, is used to create movement that expresses a different time, a lifetime. I don't know. I thought it was kind of cool. <laughs> maybe, I'm, maybe I'm talking in circles, though. Something else to linger on is when they said, quote, A mammoth from Raymondon in Dordogne has an eye that opens, circular profile, and closes, almond-shaped profile, while the mouth half opens. The artist seems to have wanted to represent the moment where the animal passes from life to death, the climax of a hunt. A set of chevrons marks the mammoth's brow, signifying the casting of a deadly projectile. Unquote. Although I love how poetic this interpretation is, the moment where the animal passes from life to death, the climax of a hunt, there's another interpretation I came across of this very same bone disc from The Archaeology of Seeing by Liliana Janik. She says, quote, The spinning mammoth head can be interpreted as a visual form of a jest, where the mammoth simply winks at us, perhaps to catch our attention. Unquote. So that's kind of fun. The mammoth is winking at us. Another reason I like this interpretation is that it's quite different from the earlier one of Zema and Rivere. It kind of underscores that, you know, these are just interpretations. Sometimes people get very passionate about this sort of stuff. They go, no, th that's wrong, this! Like very, very sort of, I don't know, kind of stresses me out. I don't know why people are like that. Like, I want to underscore that. We're just talking about ideas we're exploring here. We're not, I'm not saying this is the truth. These are just some fun interpretations of prehistory. Liliana Janik continues with a cool interpretation of another bone disc. This one was found in a cave in southern France. And there are some weird things about this one. There's a famous cave art scholar, mid-20th century, named André Leroy Guerin, 
Um, I'll read his description of this bone disc. He says, quote, On one side, there are bifurcated signs and short lines, plus a human creature with arms crossed and legs spread apart, seemingly pinned flat to the ground by what looks like a bear's paw. The other side shows a man, his genitals clearly indicated, holding what may be a stick or spear on his upper arm. Here, too, there are lines resembling a bear's paw. Unquote. So one side has a human-like figure lying face down, and you know it, it does to me look like there's a bear paw, like like pressing the guy's face into the ground, like you know w- when you get when you're wrestling in the snow, <laughs> you're giving somebody a face wash, that sort of thing. And on the other side, he's standing up and showing us that he's a he, waving his dick around. Unless, of course, that culture had more than two genders or something. But the point is, the person's dick is out. And he seems to be holding something. Leroy Gurin says that there's also a bear paw on this side, but I don't see it personally. However, there's the possibility that the figure on one side is not the same as the figure on the other. Or at least not entirely the same. I'll, I'll come back to this. Actually, I'm going to come back to this next episode, so keep this in mind. We're also going to talk about bears more further down the line. But for now, um, I've been calling this figure human-like, and we should analyze that too. Leroy Guerin calls it human-like because the arms, legs, and torso have human proportions. However, Liliana Janik notes that the head does not have human proportions, or really from my perspective, shape either. Liliana Janik says that the strange shape and size of the head on the one side suggests that it could be some sort of human-like creature rather than a human per se. Janik continues, and in this quote that I'm going to read, she seems to imply that the fact that it's a thaumatrope makes it less likely that it's a shaman, which I don't understand. Definitely not a definitive interpretation or anything, like all of these, but certainly an interesting one. She says, quote, What we see here are two creatures with human proportions, one male, but without a head or face that would confirm its human form. What is constant on both sides of the thaumatrope, however, is the hairy paw, most probably belonging to a bear. Turning the object, one creature shifts its shape into the other, while the presence of the paw remains constant. What we see here is kind of interpretative double jeopardy. The images engraved on the disc show the already transformed individual, which could be interpreted as the depiction of a shaman who has been transformed from a human being into an unknown creature, reflecting the last stage of the shamanic journey. There is, however, a little more to this since the creature is transformed into the other through the act of spinning the thaumatrope. I suggest that it is not, therefore, just the simple figure of a shaman, because one image is transformed in front of our eyes into another. My aim is rather to show movement as an integral part of the storytelling within the Paleolithic agency of seeing."
unbelievably, there's yet another form of possible prehistoric quasi-film Paleolithic animation, as well as Neolithic. Although, this one is more similar to film than animation, in my opinion. So, more fitting of Watchtel's label of proto-cinema. But, we're going to take the scenic route to get to this new form of prehistoric movie. In Ireland, overlooking River Boyne, there's a magnificent something, some sort of structure, built in 3200 BCE, so older than Stonehenge, older than the Egyptian pyramids. It's 85 meters, or 279 feet wide, at its widest point, 12 meters, or 39 feet high, and has an area of 4,500 square meters, or 1.1 acres. It's covered in ancient abstract art of curves and lines and spirals. In Irish mythology, in the cosmology of the ancient Irish, it was called Sid in Broga. It was a passage to the other world, deeply connected to the divine Tua J. Danan, inhabitants of the other world, a race in Irish mythology of kings, queens, druids, bards, warriors, heroes, healers, and craftsmen, all with supernatural powers, including the ability to, to not age or fall ill. They were likely echoes of gods from pre-Christian Gaelic Ireland. We know a lot about them from the medieval Irish Christian writers, however, who described them in various ways. Fallen angels who weren't good or evil, angels who were like Switzerland, not taken aside in the fight between God and Satan, and so were condemned to an earthly existence. Or ancient humans who had become learned and skilled in magic. Or, finally, the old gods of Ireland. The name Tuajay means tribe of gods. However, after Christianity swept through, they had been reduced to fairies, or in some descriptions, their descendants became fairies, who lived either in fairy mounds, somewhere beyond the Atlantic, or in a parallel reality where they walk alongside humans as they go about their day. The specific mound and structure I was talking about, covering over an acre of land, next to the River Boyne, has myths attached to it. The Dagda, a very important Tuajay Dinan, a giant bearded man wearing a hooded cloak, carrying a magical staff that kills with one end and resurrects or births with the other, a king connected to fertility, agriculture, manliness, strength, magic, druidry, and wisdom, was in love with the goddess of the river Boyne, Boan. However, unfortunately for the Dagda, Boan was married to another Tuajaydanen named Elkmar. But the Dagda is like, eh, whatever, and tricks Elkmar into running an errand for him that'll take a while. And in the meantime, he gets Boan pregnant. Afterwards, the Dagda tries to figure out a way to hide the pregnancy from Elkmar and decides to cast a spell, making the sun not move in the sky so that he won't notice time passing. As the sun hangs in the sky, Boan gives birth to Angus, a Tuajay Dinan associated with love, youth, summer, and poetic inspiration. At some point, the sun continues, and then at some point, Angus finds out he's actually the son of the Dagda, not Elkmar. In some versions, he tricks the Dagda 
using the same method, freezing the sun in place, and takes over the land beside the river. In others, he asks the Dagda for ownership of the land for a day and a night. And the Dagda's like, sure, whatever, weird, but okay, you can have it for a day and a night. And then Angus is like, haha, all of time is a day and a night. There's nothing else. The land is mine for all of time. <laughs> Which, um, yeah, uh, no judgment here on other cultures' myths. <laughs> that makes complete sense to me. Um, anyways, on this land that Angus took from the Dagda sits this mound covering an acre of land built in 3200 BCE, Sid in Broga, also known as Newgrange by the rediscoverers. Inside this mound, there are stone passageways shaped like a cross. In the chamber lie human bones, some of them burnt along with grave goods. And on the winter solstice, in icy December, when the northern hemisphere is tilted maximally away from the sun, the sunrise is aligned with a tiny opening above a doorway, and the chamber is overwhelmed with morning light. The opening above the doorway, aligned with the solstice, was the first of its kind to be discovered, and called a roof box by its discoverer, Michael O'Kelly, Irish archaeologist. Only one other roof box has been found at another mound, also in Ireland. So, whenever, whenever people invent a word for, like, one thing, it's like, okay. But for those who don't know about the solstice thing, over the year the sun moves in like a figure eight sort of pattern in the sky, at least in the northern hemisphere. If you take a picture of it at a certain position throughout the year and then put all those photos together, it'll look like an eight. It's kind of cool. Um, this is because of how the earth is tilted. So that's what this alignment means. It's perfectly aligned for the sunrise of midwinter. Some have suggested that the myth, when the sun hangs in the sky, is related to this illumination of the chamber on the solstice. One piece of evidence people point to for this interpretation is that the Irish word for solstice means the sun standing still. In the analysis by Anthony Murphy and Richard Moore, in Island of the Setting Sun, in Search of Ireland's Ancient Astronomers, the sunbeam is the Dagda, and the inner chamber is Boan's womb, and the narrative involving Angus is connected to the sun being at its weakest on the solstice, you know, like the shortest day of the year, and then becoming progressively stronger until it bursts into springtime. Remember, Angus takes over the land from the Dagda, so it's like a new god taking over the land from an old god, like the strong sun taking over from the weak sun. You know, it, it all resonates. Remember that Angus is associated with youth and summertime, so, you know, that can tie in probably. This would mean that these myths would have lasted for thousands of years until they were recorded in the Middle Ages. The tomb shows signs of activity for about a thousand years after its construction, and it was built 5,200 years ago. Similar alignments have been discovered in other mounds on this land, owned by the Dagda and Angus, mythologically, known as Brunaboin, something like that, or the Boyne Valley Tombs. Two of these um, other Neolithic passage tombs are very well known as well as Newgrange, called Nouth and Douth. Michael O'Kelly, that Irish archaeologist, 
says that to understand any of the three passage tombs, we must look at them all together, that their construction, quote, cannot be regarded as other than the expression of some kind of powerful force or motivation brought to the extremes of aggrandizement in these three monuments, the cathedrals of the megalithic religion, unquote. Nauth has an alignment not with the solstice, but with the equinoxes, when the sun crosses the equator, when the earth doesn't tilt away like in winter or towards like in summer, but faces the sun head on. Unfortunately, Nauth is too deteriorated to see the alignment. We can only theorize about it based on the position of the runes, but in Douth, you can still see it. Douth is like Newgrange, though. It's aligned with the solstice, not the equinoxes, like Nauth. In 1983, the researcher Martin Brennan discovered this alignment, that the evening sun of the solstice shines directly onto three stones at the back of the main circular chamber, so strongly that the whole chamber is lit, and it reflects off one of the stones into a dark alcove, shining light on decorated stones. Douth, too, has a mythical story connected to it, recorded in the medieval text that translates to the Lore of Places. The myth says that the High King of Ireland, a name I'm not going to try to pronounce, ordered the people of Ireland to build a tower to heaven in a single day. His sister casts a spell, keeping the sun standing still in the sky, making one day last forever. I'm not sure why but the High King can do one thing only to break the spell. He can only have incestuous sex with his sister to break the spell. I don't know why. It makes sense in the logic of ancient Irish cosmology, presumably. But anyways, he does. He has incestuous sex with his sister, and the day resumes. The sun sets, the builders leave. The name Douth refers to the ancient Irish word for darkening. Another name for the mound translates to Hill of Sin, which, kind of cool, but it gets even crazier. In 2020, DNA analysis was done on one of the bodies, not at Douth, but at Newgrange, the first mound we were talking about, the, the one that's over an acre. And this DNA analysis found that one of the people buried at Newgrange had parents who were incestuous, either brother and sister, or parent and child. So, some scholars have theorized that this, first of all, might be connected to the myth at Douth, and second of all, that the ancient Irish might have had incestuous relationships among the royalty, among the highest classes, because there were similar traditions in the Incan Empire, pre-colonial Hawaii, and ancient Egypt. So, there's a precedence where royalty was thought to be divine, and therefore not able to be, or not supposed to, marry those who weren't of royal blood, who weren't also divine. In most societies, incest is prohibited, but obviously if they're buried in a grand tomb, it's probably allowed societally. And these societies with divine god monarchs are some of the few societies where it is socially sanctioned. Of course, lots more evidence needs to be uncovered before anything can be said for certain, um, or, you know, beyond just suggestion, but it is really crazy if this incest at Newgrange is connected to the myth at Douth, because that means that these 
Myths, these happenings, would have been orally transmitted for thousands of years until finally being recorded in the Middle Ages. Besides the DNA analysis, all of this was discovered in the 60s, 70s, 80s, these alignments. And other similar passage tomes have been found in Western Europe, but outside of Ireland. There's Bryn Cetlidu in Wales, aligned with the sunrise of Midsommar, the summer solstice. Something a guy named Norman Lockyer argued in 1906 and was ridiculed about for his whole life. <laughs> then in 1997, studies were undertaken that agreed with him. Subsequent studies also agreed, strengthening this alignment theory. Then there's May Zhao in Scotland, aligned with the sunset on the solstice, midwinter. It was opened in 1861 by an MP, a politician, an elected member of parliament named James Farrar, who collected artifacts as a hobby and was described by a contemporary as having, quote, a rapacious appetite for excavation matched only by his crude techniques, lack of inspiration, and general inability to publish, unquote. Farrar opened it and, to his surprise, found, along with many artifacts, runes carved into the walls, the largest collection of runes in the world. Turns out, after it was closed or abandoned in the Neolithic era, it was found and looted by Norsemen in the 12th century. Even wilder, it turns out that this event was recorded in the Orkneyinga saga, which recounted how a group of Viking warriors were surprised by a snowstorm and luckily were able to turn to the tomb for shelter as the storm passed. While they were waiting for the storm to do so, they carved graffiti into the walls. The saga says, quote, On the thirteenth day of Christmas, they traveled on foot over to Firth. During a snowstorm, they took shelter in Maizau, and two of them, his men, went insane, which slowed them down badly, so that by the time they reached Firth, it was nighttime. Unquote. The translations of the runes are very funny, so I'll read a few. The first one, Thorny fucked, Helgi carved. <laughs> then, Ikimbjork the fair widow, many a woman has walked, stooping in here, a very showy person. That one was signed by Erlinger. Another one, Ingegirth is the most beautiful of all women. Uh, carved beside a rough drawing of a slobbering dog. <laughs> um, next one. This mound was raised before Ragnar Lothbrok's her sons were brave, smooth-hide men, though they were. Another. These runes were carved by the man most skilled in runes in the Western Ocean. And yet another. Arnfither Matter carved these runes with his axe, owned by Gok Trandilson in the Southland. And finally, Crusaders broke into Mezau. Lif, the Earl's cook, carved these runes. To the northwest is a great treasure hidden. It was long ago that a great treasure was hidden here. Happy is he that might find that great treasure. Hakon alone bore treasure from this mound. Signed, Simon Sereth.
But anyways, I was talking about how a lot of these passage tombs seem to be connected to astronomy and the sun. It seems like as archaeology progressed through the 20th century, more of these astronomical correlations were noticed. But the thing was, the subfield of archaeoastronomy, the, you know, dealing with this sort of stuff, relations with the heavens and celestial bodies, they'd always viewed these tombs as observatories. Like, they're a way of observing the sunrise or sunset on the solstice or equinox, like, like kind of like a calendar, like keeping track. But then two researchers came along who changed everything. In the mid-1990s, Ronnie Scott and Tim Phillips were studying two passage tombs at Balneuron of Clava, a site in Scotland with three cairns, the cairns being human-made piles of stones, of which passage tombs are a subset. And these ones were constructed around 4,000 years ago in the Bronze Age. They noticed something interesting, but something we've been over. As you may expect, the two tombs aligned with the sun, this time for the setting sun of the midwinter solstice. Out of the three cairns at the site, the ones that are aligned with the solstice are the two cairns on the outside. The central cairn isn't aligned with the setting sun of the winter solstice or seemingly any other celestial event. It also isn't a passage tomb like the other two cairns, but instead it's something called a ring cairn. There is one small ring of stones within a larger ring of stones. In between the two rings, the two circles, there was either rubble or something else, or it was a roofed area. So, like, like a, circular, a circular structure that you can walk inside. But the middle circle was definitely open. It's maybe a little hard to describe with just the audio. I'll, uh, I'll link an image of it in the sources. But it's really cool because some researchers make an argument from comparative archaeology, looking at similar structures elsewhere, as well as the fact that some charred bones were found at the site, to suggest that this central ring cairn may have been a pyre that was involved in ceremonies relating to the two passage tombs in the periphery. A pyre being uh, like a structure of material that catches on fire. It's usually used to burn corpses. Soon, however, Ronnie Scott and Tim Phillips began to notice something else about these two passage tombs. Both of the tombs had had their roofs destroyed sometime over the thousands of years in between their construction and their modern discovery. So Scott and Phillips did some experimental archaeology, temporarily reconstructing the roofs of the tombs using tarps and rope and timber, things like that. They did this two winter solstices in a row in 1996 and 1997, along with others who helped. The goal, of course, was to witness this alignment with the sun more closely to how they would have seen it 4,000 years ago, when the tomb was constructed, when it wasn't just ruins. The paper from 1996 appears to be unavailable anywhere, at least anywhere I have access to, but I found the 1997 paper only available to me through the Wayback Machine on internetarchive.org. Shout out, most important website online. Anyways, so in 1997, Scott and Phillips and their team observed the sunset twice, once on December 20th and once on December 22nd. 
Um, which, you know, I should mention, when it says aligned with the solstice, the sun shines in for, you know, the, the couple days around the solstice as well. So you, that's why you can witness the effect on multiple days in one year. So I want to read Ronnie Scott's description of what they saw during the first sunset on December 20th. Um, he, he talks about quartz in this passage. Uh, quartz is a mineral that when you shine light on it, it sparkles. So just in case you don't know. So describing the first sunset on the 20th with these reconstructed tombs, Scott says, quote, The light from the outside coming down the passage struck the rear wall of the chamber defined in the main by a setting of five stones. We observed that two of the left-hand stones appeared to sparkle as quartz particles on the surface of the stones caught the light. Then, as the sun set lower and became more red in color, this effect disappeared, and the five stones were lit up by a rosy pink glow. By this time, there were several other observers, apart from Tim and myself, all commenting on the sparkle and then the glow being more intense and interesting than expected. In the dark of the chamber, the features on the surface of the stones appearing to be enhanced by the quality of the light. One observer, a history teacher named Don Essen, said that he could imagine a leaping animal form on one of the stones. This was partially created by iron staining on the stone. Others said they could as well, but it was generally accepted that one's imagination was stimulated as the patterning on the surface of the stones was enhanced by the quality of the light. Unquote. So, pretty cool, but, you know, not as cool as the Paleolithic animation that we were talking about earlier, but I promise we're building up to something here. And something to mention is that history teacher who, you know, was imagining an animal on the stones. It's kind of fun. This is one area where the imagination of the researchers plays a role, but we have to keep, we have to keep that in mind while also keeping in mind that Paleolithic people also had imagination. Right? Not simplifying them to uh, animals or homo economicus or anything. This sunset in 1997 was obscured by clouds, so the sunlight didn't hit directly like it did the previous year, when, quote, the site was completely lit by direct sunlight, creating a warm gold-red effect over the cairns and standing stones, unquote. What really struck Scott and Phillips were certain features of how both passage tombs were constructed, features that only became obvious with the reconstruction of the roofs and the viewing of the sunset. One of these features is that the tombs only had space for one person to view the sunlight coming into the chamber directly, like standing at the back and looking outwards. Not only this, but doing so wasn't very pleasant. It was blinding. However, the tombs were both designed so that about 20 people could view the back of the tomb lit by sunlight. Additionally, the roof would have been high enough to accommodate people standing like this. It wasn't how you might be imagining it, where you have to like crouch or crawl to get in. Obviously, building something higher takes more material, takes more time, maybe is even more challenging depending on specific situation. Like, it's not something you'd do for fun. It seems like you'd make it this high if you had an audience like this in mind, standing up, or for some other reason. Maybe not, of course, but it seems more likely that there'd be a reason for building the passages at such a height. I should describe the passage a bit more, too. Those Irish tombs I mentioned earlier were cruciform, shaped like a cross, 
So one long passage that you enter into, and then when you hit the back, you can go left or right into smaller passages. But these ones in Scotland were more... Mm, okay, <laughs> okay, I don't do meth, but they are shaped like a meth pipe. Swear to God, I only know the shape from that meme of that meth pipe with the caption, works cited. I don't know. But but if you haven't smoked meth or seen that meme, um, the tomb has a long straight passage that the sun shines through, and then it opens up into a chamber that's roughly circular, although uneven. Maybe a less controversial metaphor would be like, it's like a lollipop that's melted in the sun, so that circle at the top is like all deformed and lopsided. Like, like when the sun comes in through the passage, the beam sort of splits this chamber into two, this, this large opening at the end. And one side is a lot larger than the other side. That's what I mean by lopsided. And this larger side is where those 20 people could observe from. So technically, it would fit more than 20 people, but Scott and Phillips thought it was likely that the larger side was intended for observers of this effect, of the sun shining in on the solstice. Furthermore, both tombs had the stones at the back not perpendicular to the sun entering, not facing the sun head-on, but skewed slightly, so they were facing the larger side of the chamber. It's like, it's like turning a computer screen to show someone to your left something. That's what I mean. Like, the stones were facing that larger side of the chamber directly, not the sun. So, in other words, just... You know, just one more piece of evidence for this hypothesis, that the tombs were created for people to watch the sun hit the back of the tomb on a certain day. There's more evidence too, although it gets a little complicated. I'm going to read another passage, but with only this paper, and not the earlier one from 1996, or this diagram that they keep referencing, it's a little hard to figure out exactly what they mean. So. I'm just going to re read a big chunk of it. Ronnie Scott says, quote, In the passage, it was noticed that the light from outside appeared to just brush the edges of the upright stones of the passage from where there was a slight kink in the alignment of the orthostats. Orthostat, by the way, just means upright stone. Under the experimental conditions we had created, this construction now seemed deliberate, as was the architectural design of the chamber. The purpose appeared to be to enhance the spread and amount of light entering the chamber. Further tests would have to be done to substantiate this hypothesis. It would appear that the passage is taking an optimum shape between focusing the light by the narrow entrance and between increasing the light capturing properties by increasing the area of spread. The analogy would be an early bellows camera where the bellows increases in width towards the rear and the plate." Unquote. So the thing he mentioned at the end there, the bellows camera, those are those old-fashioned, pre-digital, like the cameras you imagine in like 1900, uh, with a big thing called a bellows on it, something that looks kind of like an accordion, and it's used to move the lens back and forth to focus the camera. Scott continues, quote, once the sun had set, experiments were done with torches and candles placed at the entrance to the passage. It was surprising how much light from one candle reached the rear wall of the chamber. Torches obviously gave more light, but did not enhance the features of the stone in the chamber, as did the candle. 
end quote. What all this means is that the experiments suggested that some architectural features of the tombs were intentional, whereas before they were assumed to be mistakes of the prehistoric builders, like the unevenness of the circular chamber, how one side was much bigger than the other, how the five stones at the end of the chamber were skewed to one side, stuff like that. Before, this would have been considered mistakes, or maybe those people just didn't care about symmetry as much, something like that. But no, these things were beginning to seem intentional. So when they were setting up to view the sunset on the 22nd, two days later, and actually this one was done by Ronnie Scott and Annette Jack, Tim Phelps wasn't present, but what they did was add a large black polythene sheet on top of the tarps, because on the 20th it was realized that light was still getting in. I'm sure you've seen tarps before, like those blue ones. They obviously don't prohibit all light when you go underneath them. So the black polythene sheet was to make the conditions even more similar to what the roof of the tombs would have probably been like 4,000 years ago. Probably something like stone and earth and stuff, stuff like that that would block out light more than a tarp, except from the entrance. The 22nd also had different weather. There were no clouds in the sky, but there was a light mist. This made the light pretty different than on the 20th, Scott calling the light outside white and diffuse, and the light inside whiter, stronger, and sharper. Let's take a quick diversion away from tombs and caves just for a second. You know eyes? <laughs> of course you know what eyes are. Um, that's, my, that's my icebreaker. Do you know eyes? But you know how people have different color eyes, but the center of their eye, their pupil, is always the same color? Black? Well, your pupils are an aperture. They widen and close to regulate how much light is let into the eye. And here's where it gets crazy. At least for me, because, like, to be honest, I hadn't thought about what exactly pupils were before. I don't know if other people are having more eye-based conversations than me, but <laughs> pupils aren't black circles on our eyes. Pupils are holes into the eye, and they're black because there's no light inside of the eye. Like, isn't that wild? I, <laughs> I don't know why people aren't talking about this all the time. But at the back of the eye, the light hits the retina, to show an inverted, like an upside-down image that the brain flips right side up. Just a quick side note, but one of my favorite science experiments of all time involves upside-down goggles, goggles that make you see upside-down. Um, the Wikipedia page for them says, also known as invertoscopes by Russian researchers, in case you wanted to know. Uh, I don't know why, I don't know what the Russians are doing, that they need their own name for it, but... The first person to analyze these invertoscopes, these upside-down goggles, was this guy named George Stratton in the 1890s. He wore them for eight days straight, and by the fourth day, he said that everything looked normal. Only by looking really closely could he tell that he was wearing these inverted goggles. So 
like I honestly don't even know what that means. But he says like everything looked normal, like and he was able to walk around fine, but there was still a feeling that things were off. Like it's just very hard to me to understand what exactly that means. And even crazier, when he took them off, it took his vision several hours to go back to normal. But anyways, we were talking about how pupils aren't circles, they're holes. So your eye is kind of like a dark room with a tiny hole that lets light in to make an image on the retina at the back of the dark room of your eye. And another, another eye thing that people don't talk about enough, no red eyes from flash photography. Like, the inside of your eye is filled with red blood vessels. So the red eyes from flash photos comes from the flash reflecting off of these red blood vessels, which is insane to me. I feel like I should have known this a really long time ago. Um, like, is this common knowledge? I, I don't know, because, you know, growing up, I'd always encounter red eyes in photographs when, like, during like family photos or whatever, nobody brought this up. I thought I thought cameras were just weird with eyes sometimes. I didn't know they're like showing red blood vessels at the back of your eye. Anyways, of course, how the eye works is a lot more complicated. This is just one simple way to talk about it. Like there's a lens in the pupil, for example. Um, the point I'm making by telling the simplified version is that eyes are kind of like the biological version of the phenomenon known as a camera obscura, or a pinhole camera. If you have a dark room with a tiny hole in the curtains, an upside down image of outside is projected onto the opposite wall, as long as the outside is light enough, as long as there's a big enough contrast between the darkness of inside and the lightness of outside. The smaller the hole, the clearer the image. You can kind of just think logically about this. If the hole's really big, there's all these light waves coming in from many different directions, reflecting off a ton of different things. But if the hole is really small, only a small amount of light waves can enter. And this corresponds to specific points from outside that the light's reflecting off of. Again, if you don't believe me, Google Images can explain it much better than uh, I can vocally. So camera obscuras, are an abstraction or a generalization of eyes, non-biological eyes. Or maybe it's better to say eyes are a biological adaptation that takes advantage of a pretty complex physics concept, first existing 540 million years ago when the Nautilus, a mollusk living in the sea, developed eyes that worked this way with camera obscura. The first written record of this phenomenon is in a Chinese text called Mozi or the Mohist Canon, dated to the 4th century BCE, um, but authorship traditionally given to Mozi, who it's named after, who lived from 470 to 391 BCE. Also in China, a bit later but still earlier than any other accounts, a special kind of camera obscura was written about in the Zhubi Suanjing writings. So from 1046 BCE to 256 BCE, very long span. Um, but this type of camera obscura is a very basic type, where a gnomon, G-N-O-M-O-N, the part of a sundial that casts the shadow to tell the time, 
it, when that's pierced, it creates a camera obscura, but it just projects an image of the sun on the sundial, you know, which was another way to tell time, the position of the sun image rather than the shadow. It's pretty cool, but very basic, right? It only, only shows one image of the sun. Then, moving through history, in a work from ancient Greece called Problems, which is either written by Aristotle or a follower of his pretending to be Aristotle, this effect is mentioned. It says, Why is it that when the sun passes through quadrilaterals, as for instance in wicker work, it does not produce a figure rectangular in shape, but circular? Why is it that an eclipse of the sun, if one looks at it through a sieve or through leaves, such as a plane tree or other broad-leaved tree, or if one joins the fingers of one hand over the fingers of the other, the rays are crescent-shaped, where they reach the earth. Is it for the same reason as that when light shines through a rectangular peephole, it appears circular in the form of a cone? That's another common way people experience this effect. I've seen it myself when, during an eclipse, the sunlight shining through the trees creates a whole bunch of crescents, the projected image of the moon traversing in front of the sun. It's really cool to look at. The only other mention of camera obscura in ancient Greece that I've come across is that, or it's not a mention, it's a possible mention. I think it's a bit of a stretch myself, but some people have suggested that Plato's allegory of the cave, um, you know, where people are chained in a cave with their backs facing the exit, they only see the shadows um, on the walls. Um, some people think that that might be related or an early account of the pinhole camera. Um, camera obscura. I'm not, I'm not so sure about that one. But as history continued, we have more and more records of people experimenting with camera obscura as optical instruments became more popular. One of the architects of the Hagia Sophia in modern-day Istanbul, but at the time Constantinople, a guy named Anthemius of Trailes, experimented with camera obscura in the 6th century. In China, Yu Chualung did similar in the 10th century. Then the Arab physicist Ibn al-Haytham studied it extensively in the 11th century, and he became known to Europe and elsewhere as the inventor of the effect. Ibn al-Haytham is known as the father of modern optics, also, because he argued that sight happens in the brain, not the eye, and that sight happens because light reflects off of objects, then hits the eye, before him, people thought that it had something to do with something coming out of the eye and hitting the objects. Empedocles and Euclid thought that this happened by particles of light coming out of the eye. Plato thought it was some kind of fire coming out of the eye and hitting the object. After Al-Haytham, camera obscuras became huge, especially as European science exploded into the Enlightenment. Also after Al-Haytham, camera obscuras continued their importance in the field of optics. In 1558, Giovanni Battista della Porta wrote, quote, The image is let in by the pupil, as by the hole of a window, and that part of the sphere that is set in the middle of the eye stands instead of a crystal table. I know ingenious people will be much delighted by this. Unquote. And then a few years later, in 1569, in a text titled Practica della Perspectiva, a guy named Damiello Barbaro, said, quote, 
close all the shutters and doors until no light enters the camera, except through the lens, and opposite hold a sheet of paper, which you move forward and backward until the scene appears in the sharpest detail. There on the paper, you will see the whole as it really is, with its distances, its colors and shadows and motion, the clouds, the water twinkling, the birds flying. By holding the paper steady, you can trace the whole perspective with a pen, shade it, and delicately color it from nature." Unquote. About these two texts, the scholar R. L. Gregory says, quote, "...the secret was out. The world is seen by the brain from images in the camera obscuras of our eyes." So at last, the eyes could be thought of as devices, mechanisms obeying laws of physics and optics. Copies could be made in various forms and incorporated into technology for the use of science and art. It was a remarkably important step, philosophically, as well as useful in revealing the significance and nature of perspective. The aim now is to achieve the same for the brain, to understand the structure and function of brains so that they may be described functionally, and replicated rather as the camera obscura, replicated the essentials of biological eyes, though made from quite different materials. The camera obscura showed that a glass lens serves us well, or better, than the living tissues and humors of the living eye for forming images. This was one of the many steps towards isolating and reproducing in other forms functional features of living things, and using them to carry aspects of life into machines." Unquote. So that's extremely cool. Um, Gregory was writing in the 90s, I should let you know, and that passage is kind of putting a historical lens onto that thing I was talking about earlier, like whether eyes are biological adaptations of this effect in physics called the camera obscura, or whether camera obscuras are abstractions of the eye. All in all, very cool. Carrying on beyond the 1500s, Leonardo da Vinci was really into camera obscuras too, along with most other major scientists. A lot of scientists continued to use it to study optics, um, but there were other uses too, like some, some used it to make scientific drawings more accurate. There's some funny photos you can find online, or not, not photos, but drawings that show you know, people from the 1700s uh, in little tents with reconstructed camera obscuras trying to draw things. Some, like David Hockney, have suggested that a lot of the Renaissance artists that painted pretty realistically, like Jan van Eyck, used this camera obscura effect to draw more realistically. It also became a pretty popular sort of toy or fascination among the general public, too. Um, in the early modern period. So I think you can see where I'm going with this. that out of the way, let's go back to Ronnie Scott and his 1997 paper. Scott continues by saying, quote, two analogies came to my mind after the experiment. 
In early medieval churches, the altar was placed behind a rude screen, behind which the congregation sat slash stood in the dimly lit nave, unquote. So a rude screen is not a screen that is kind of a dick. It's a very fancy barrier between the chancel and the nave in churches, the nave being the longer part of the church between the entrance and the front where, you know, where the regular people sit, and the front area being the chancel, where the altar and the choir and the clergy are. And it's cool. In a, in a lot of churches, the rude screen sticks out. So the church, when you look down on it from above, is shaped like a cross. Anyways, Scott continues, quote, Light from a south-facing window flooded down into the altar, taking into account the use of incense and the separation of the congregation by the rude screen from the mystery. Light was used for dramatic effect to enhance the rituals that were being performed around the altar. Unquote. The second analogy that the experiment brought to mind was something Scott encountered on a trip to Padua, a township in Veneta in northern Italy. He says, quote, Secondly, when I visited Padua a few years ago, the medieval hall between the Piazza della Frutta and the Piazza della Urbe had a hole high up on the south facing wall. A metal strip was inset in the tiled floor, and at certain times the diffuse image of the sun was projected along this metal strip. Could a similar arrangement be the reason for the winter solstice alignment? I once made a pinhole camera with my pupils and know how good an image they can project. Though the smaller the pinhole, the less light can enter the camera, but the sharper the image becomes. A door placed over the entrance of the passage with a small hole in it might project the sun's image onto the rear of the chamber, especially direct sunlight, which would be intense. Being an inverted image, as with a lens, the sun's image would appear to rise from the floor of the chamber and finally disappear as the sun set. An image of the sun may even be able to appear to travel down the passageway before rising up the rear wall and disappearing. What a spectacle that would be in a society dominated by the seasons and thereby the cycle of the sun, and with life and death. Obviously, there's no evidence at present to support this, but it is an interesting thought. Perhaps some controlled experiments could be conducted to see if it was possible at all. Unquote. Prehistoric people may have made camera obscura, pinhole cameras, and they may have connected them to their burial rituals, their cosmologies, and who knows what else. later, someone named Matt Gatton took them up in their challenge and did some experiments. He and his team did them in 2005 and 2006 in Kentucky, 
and then worked with archaeologists Pierre Catalan and Claire Bellier at a museum in Belgium for more experiments. For the experiments in Kentucky, Gatton wasn't concerned with passage tombs or anything similar, but rather tents, made mostly out of the hides of animals. These are similar to tents used in many different cultures. Uh, probably the most well-known ones are the teepees of many indigenous cultures of North America. But hide tents are found elsewhere, like in Asia and Europe, especially in the north, made out of reindeer hide, for example. It seems to me that the colder the place, the more likely it is that a culture would develop a tradition of making tents out of hides, because it's a lot of effort, but also a lot of warmth. This is actually important, because the idea is that Paleolithic people dealt with the cold weather of the Ice Age by making similar dwellings. The only evidence we have of Paleolithic dwellings, besides what we talked about at the beginning of this episode, evidence that they lived in uh, rock shelters, rock overhangs, and the mouths of caves, but besides that, the only evidence we have um, are sites, archaeological sites in the open, um, where there's things like stones and bones and holes in the ground, uh, perhaps for poles. So the thinking is that these tents were made out of wood and hide and whatever else, all these things that are much less long-lasting than stones and bones. So everything else disintegrated before the invention of archaeology. For his experiments, Matt Gatton took both of these uh, possibilities into account. For his first experiment, he made a sort of half tent out of bison hide and sticks, using a rock overhang for the other half. And for the second experiment, he made a bison hide teepee in the open. Um, reconstructing the presumed Paleolithic dwellings as best as possible. And, surprise surprise, it worked. The interiors of both were dark enough to allow for camera obscura, and poking a small hole in the hide projected an upside-down image of the outside onto the opposite tent wall. Gatton even brought a horse to the first experiment, making it stand outside, and projected an upside-down image of the horse onto the tent wall. And for the second, he used an actual bison, um, along with the bison hide tent. And both the bison and the landscape were projected onto the opposite wall. Looking at the photos is, yeah, pretty incredible, actually. <laughs> However, there's more. Remember those plaquettes we were talking about? And how recent studies suggest that they may have been portable versions of the animated cave art, designed to be placed next to a fire with artwork on it? So the artwork dances in the flickering light. Well, Gatton proposes another idea. And of course, it's always possible that some of the plaquettes were used in one way, some used in another. I mean, prehistory is much longer than history, so, you know, prehistory, pre prehistoric people had a lot of time on their hands in aggregate. So multiple hypotheses for their use can coexist. Similarly, for any other widespread human-made things from prehistory, right? Makes sense to me, at least. Because, again, if it's true that Paleolithic humans were just as human as us, they were also just as imaginative and intelligent and could build something for one use and then similarly imagine multiple other uses, right? Just like the researchers. I feel like that's how a lot of invention works, right? By what's called in biology, exaptation. In other words, just like researchers can hypothesize multiple uses for objects, 
prehistoric people can develop multiple uses for objects. Along these lines, not only does Gatton have a different proposal for how the plaquettes were used, he also has another hypothesis for why many of the animals in cave art often have multiple body parts. Gatton points out something in the Paleolithic engravings from Gonersdorf, engravings of five horses, and all of them have double or triple noses engraved. Like in Watchtel's theory, that would be to show movement, right? They're Paleolithic animators. But what Gatton proposes is that the plaquettes were how the Paleolithic people traced animals that were outside their tents before transposing them onto the cave walls. Here's how he frames the plaquettes. He says, quote, In addition to cave art, there's a lesser-known aspect of Paleolithic art, artworks on small portable stones and bones called plaquettes, which oftentimes have variously oriented figures of animals piled on top of each other. Since the subject matter is the same on plaquettes as on the cave walls, researchers have felt that there must have been similar usage. But what that usage was remains nebulous. The thing to know is that plaquettes are a parallel art form to cave wall art. Unquote. I'll post an image in the sources, but he's definitely right, um, at least in this case, about how the animals are piled on top of each other on the plaquettes. Um, yeah, the, the image he shows is more jumbled than any of the cave art I've seen, which is already pretty jumbled and superimposed and stuff. But it isn't just that plaquettes are somewhat mysterious and parallel to the cave art that led Gatton to this conclusion. He did another experiment. Gatton got art students to draw bison from memory, then from observation by observing a projector movie screen of a bison in a field, and then from tracing as the projector was twisted back towards them onto their paper, you know? The drawings from observation and from memory are fairly similar, but the drawings from tracing have multiple legs, tails, and, in the examples Gatton provides online, two heads, because at one point the bison turned their head. He obviously puts these images next to Paleolithic examples to show that the tracings are more similar than the drawings from memory or observation to the ancient cave art. And here's where the multiple nostrils comes in. Gatton says, quote, These grazing, hooved herbivores are designed to run at great speed for an extended duration. Part of this equation is oxygen, they have huge nares and sizable lungs, and when they breathe, they rock slightly. Of course, we move when we breathe too, but this movement is not that noticeable, in humans and other animals, because of the way we look at things. Our eyes constantly glance around, and slight movements are hard to recognize. These slight movements only become noticeable when doing a tracing which takes a couple of breaths to execute. Of course, breathing isn't the only movement animals engage in. They also shuffle about on legs. On the left below are engravings from Paleolithic plaquettes, a mammoth from Gonersdorf, and a horse from Lagerie Bass. On the right are two of the tracings from our experiments. Unquote. And the accompanying images show a pretty astounding similarity. Another common characteristic of prehistoric European cave art and plaquette art that we haven't talked about yet is the slight misshapenness of many of the animals 
like overly large torsos and heads that are a bit too small. Matt Gatton goes into some technical arguments to explain that these features are also found in camera obscura drawings, tracings rather, like like how in tracing the student would typically step further away from the plaquette at a point. You know, I, I think it's like the person tra- tracing is too focused on their hands tracing and their eyes watching the animal carefully to focus on standing perfectly still. At one point they go back a bit and this enlarges a part of the animal. Another thing is that if the plaquette is tilted just a little bit, it can distort the end product, making the torso large and the head small, which is, as I said, characteristic of the cave animals. So Gatton proposes that the style of Paleolithic art has a major source in the camera obscura projected image. He goes even deeper into this in his full manuscript that uh, I don't have access to. Another mystery or, you know, odd characteristic of the cave art in France and Spain that we'll come back to um, is that it has a style that was maintained for over 20,000 years, which is an insane amount of time, right? I I mean, think about how fast art styles change these days. Um, Obviously, different situation, but, you know, even in ancient contexts, nothing lasted for 20,000 years. But this hypothesis has an answer for that. If the style is largely based in camera obscura projected images, then this might explain the longativity of it, because all that would need to persist would be the camera obscura technology, just just the idea that tents can make movies of the world outside. Maybe this is also why the subjects were mostly animals, not humans so much. Although, you know, I'd expect landscapes to be a big part of it too this theory holds. Something else I was thinking about is that in this theory there's a fun contrast to Watchtell's theory because in both Watchtell and Ganton's theories the art shows movement but in one it's the artist trying to make it move, trying to figure out a way to animate their art, to incorporate time into the art, and in the other it's maybe the artist trying to make the moving thing stay still, like, ugh, it's moving again, so it has two heads. Okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> of, co- of course, I mean, it probably wouldn't be like that. Um, it is very poetic that the movement of the animal becomes the movement on the plaquette or wall. Maybe it's more like transcribing the movement and being glad and thankful it was transcribed because later at night in the fire glow, when they come alive again, Maybe it's like trapping the animal's soul, a soul that can be reinvigorated, resurrected by fire at night in the darkness, or in the darkness deep inside the earth. Something interesting is that this Paleolithic art that lasted for 20,000 years ended when the Pleistocene period ended and the Holocene began around 11,000 years ago. This was the end of the Magdalenian culture. There's art afterwards, of course, but it's quite different. How did the style stay the same for 20,000 years and then all of a sudden change? 
Well, the Holocene brought warming. Remember, during the Pleistocene, when they were making the Paleolithic cave art, the Ice Age happened. Eric Farr offers two hypotheses um, explaining this sudden shift, if indeed the inspiration for the Paleolithic cave art was the Camera Obscura, or it was somehow tied to Camera Obscura effects. He says this could be because of a change in time spent hunting and habitat, or it could be the result of increasing population density. I'll explain. I'll explain the first one first. Time spent hunting and habitat. Um, so here's how this hypothesis works. During glaciation, animals had migration patterns that one could predict, and it was so cold that you could store meat for a long time in the ice or permafrost or buried in the frozen ground. So in between these migrations, there would be time for art and other activities, not necessary for survival. When it was hotter, or it's better to say more temperate, one has to hunt constantly because they don't have either fridges or agriculture yet. Also, the megafauna don't migrate as commonly, like the large creatures they hunt, so you can predict where they'll be with as much accuracy. It takes longer to hunt in the first place. This led to cultural and artistic changes, according to this narrative. Also, the hot weather might lessen the likelihood of hide tents, instead making shelters out of sticks or whatever, like like lessening the likelihood of accidental camera obscura, because you need a pretty dark room for it. It, it doesn't work in structures with like a whole bunch of holes in it. However, Farr suggests a different hypothesis, um, which is also interesting but kind of weird. I, I don't really understand whether this is an alternative explanation for the effects of the Holocene, like a different idea about prehistory in general, or whether it can coexist with what I was just talking about, how more time had to be spent hunting. Like, like it seems to contradict that or negate it, but um, Farr says that the temperate climate of the Holocene allowed for more diverse resources, which led to increased population density. He says the archaeological record shows, in general, a shift from small bands to larger villages in this period. How does this relate to art? Well, this is of course largely speculation, but, you know, I'm not sure about this, but none of this camera obscura hypothesis stuff mentions its use among traditional, non-industrial societies of today, or in the written record. Like, I'd be curious if anybody knows any mention of it, like maybe an anthropology of arctic cultures and stuff. But what Farr says is that maybe this increased population density in the beginning of the Holocene, this change from bands to tribes, it created more complex cosmologies and myths and magic and societies, which maybe drew the people away from camera obscura-based realism to styles developed to serve the more complex myths, uh, what Stuart Guthrie calls specialized creativity. I mean, if you look at Inuit art, it doesn't seem inspired by camera obscura, and searching Inuit camera obscura on Google doesn't show anything about its traditional use. Yeah, you know, I'm still not super sure about either of these, but you know, I'm sure you can think up some good counter-arguments, like I can, but it's fun to explore the possible as well as the probable. <laughs> so let's, let's summarize where we've gone so far with this camera obscura hypothesis. There are some tombs aligned with important seasonal sunsets or sunrises, 
We've gone over ones in Ireland and Great Britain. Then in the 90s, after reconstructing two of these passage tombs, a researcher speculated that maybe these were used as camera obscuras, the sun's image projected onto the back of the tomb. A few years later, Matt Gatton did some reconstructions and further theorizing, showing that high tents or lean-tos can provide images of the outside, upside down, projected, showing that certain features of animals traced by this method match with certain features of European cave art, explaining the use of the plaquettes in this way. Of course, just because something could have happened doesn't mean that it did. I don't think I've ever stumbled across a camera obscure in the wild before, personally. But, but of course, I live in a world where we've conquered representation so much that I have all these images and videos and, you know, from across the world in a little rectangle in my pocket or in front of my stupid face or on billboards and bus windows and whatnot. So, you know, if I, if I did encounter a camera obscura, I probably wouldn't recognize it, pay attention to it. The world I live in is too fast and loud and full of representations to really notice that kind of thing, unless it's super obvious or a particular circumstance. But Paleolithic people hiding in their tents during the Ice Age? Gatton thinks it's possible camera obscura projections played a role in the development of art or religion or metaphysical thinking or all of the above. I'll talk about how it relates to the development of art more uh, later, and especially next episode, but it plays a role in religion and metaphysical, spiritual thinking, this reasoning goes, by providing an alternate reality, an animal that's not really there, or an animal outside that is also kind of somewhat inside, an experience that's, as this theory goes, enough to spark the imagination into thinking about other realms. Personally, I'm not really sold on this. Um, you know, probably death is more of a issue for that sort of thinking. But to get closer to understanding how it may have sparked a spiritual impulse, here's how Gatton describes the Paleolithic experience of seeing a camera obscura image. He says, quote, Herds of prehistoric beasts stir as dawn breaks over the steplands. At the edge of the field, a family of early humans slumbers in a crude animal hide tent. A girl wakes first. She feels the warmth and comfort of thick fur blankets as the scent of charcoal drifts from the hearth. Fading into consciousness, she sees bison floating around on the ceiling, on the walls, on the floor, on herself. She tries to touch the bison, but they are without physical substance. Awed, scared, she wakes the others. So the main problem we have now is not figuring out whether it's possible, but instead trying to figure out if it was likely, moving from possibility to probability. One thing to maybe remember back to is how our eyes are a biological camera obscura, or camera obscura is a more general form of the eye, um, non-biological as well as biological. In other words, th this is a phenomenon that can occur in nature. It's something you can stumble across accidentally. People nowadays sometimes stumble across them. One example someone in contemporary times has encountered is a big hollow tree in Costa Rica. Um, and it has a tiny hole in it so that an upside-down forest movie is projected onto the opposing inner wall of the trunk. 
To try to get a rough estimate on how likely it is that camera obscura effects were witnessed by prehistoric people, Matt Gatton and Leah Carrion did statistical modeling. They were trying to figure out the likelihood of Paleolithic people coming across accidental camera obscura in their hide tents, from which, of course, the effect could be recreated purposefully. Um, I'm not going to go over the specifics of how they got this number. It involved Bayesianism and a computer program called Tree Age Pro 2011, and it's complicated, so you know I'll put the link in the sources if you're interested. But what this one statistical modeling study found was that the probability of a Paleolithic person witnessing a camera obscura effect was a 1-8% to chance per day, which means that the expected amount of times they would see it in a year is between 4 and 29 times. Obviously, this sort of thing really, really depends on what you take the variables to be. Um, and, I mean, it seems like a whole lot of stuff, right? A whole lot of uh, guesses and assumptions and stuff. They got the result spanning from a 1% chance to an 8% chance of seeing one in a given day because they modeled different conditions, like the chances differ depending on weather, depending on the type of dwelling they were living in, and not just the type, but how wide the field of view was in front of the dwelling, whether the dwelling has a hole in it, how large the hole in the dwelling was, can't be too large, right? But I feel like there are, you know, just a ton more variables, right? All this seems to rest upon a lot of assumptions. But it's still very cool to look at, I think, because when they extrapolated this probability, combining the probability of seeing a camera obscura effect in a given day with the amount of years that prehistoric humans existed and estimates of the human population throughout those years, they found that throughout all of prehistory, camera obscura images are likely to have been observed between 54.8 billion to 4.38 trillion times. So even if Gatton and Carrion are assuming it's more common than it was by a lot, even if they're overlooking other variables or resting upon tenuous assumptions or whatever, that number is <laughs> incredibly large, right? The, the effect still may have been meaningful, even if they're uh, way too liberal. If prehistoric people only observed it hundreds of millions of times, there could have been times that they pay co close attention to it, figure out how it works, use it for representational art. And of course, if they're correct, that's crazy. 54.8 billion to 4.38 trillion times. So, you know, you can think what you want about that. However, I, I should say, it's, it's not like I've analyzed their analysis and found it lacking or fanciful. They do take conservative estimates on a lot of things. So with all this in mind, let's go back to Ronnie Scott and those passage tombs in Ireland and Wales and Scotland. Because Scott and others didn't just hang out, kick up their feet, crack open a cold one after those studies in the 90s. They kept on investigating this, and other archaeologists noted their studies and investigated themselves. Ronnie Scott says, quote, Megalithic chambered cairns were among the first substantial monuments to be constructed in Europe. They had an unprecedented visual impact upon the landscape, and in recent years there's been increasing interest in the potential for their inner spaces to generate immersive, multi-sensory experiences. These phenomena are striking to witness in the present day. In the Neolithic, such intense, multi-sensory events might have transformed passage tombs into places where people engaged with spectacular and otherworldly experiences." Unquote. In the years since his first experiments, 
at Balneuron of Clava in Scotland. Ronnie Scott had done work in Kewin Hill, Wideford Hill, Finquay Hill, the Dwarfy Stain, and the Grey Cairns of Campster in the north of Scotland. And in northern Wales, a passage tomb aligned with the Midsummer Sunrise. It's called Bryn Cetlidu and was constructed in 3000 BCE. Scott reconstructed it, but also blocked off the entrance with fabric and a hide, unlike the 1990s experiments, to see if a camera obscura effect could be attained. He reports, quote, On July 1st, 2014, at 4 a.m., just before sunrise, an opaque sheet of fabric was handheld in place where the passage opens into the chamber. This blocked all light except for that passing through a single aperture, one centimeter in diameter, projecting an inverted color image of the dawn sky and silhouetted trees upon the stone at the rear of the chamber, a focal distance of 2.9 meters. The image was not finely focused, but its contents became increasingly distinct as the sun brightened, with the rising sun appearing as a bright disk of white light. The fixed aperture was relocated along the passage to see how this impacted upon the size of the projection. Towards the passage entrance, the image size increased but became increasingly dim and indistinct. Unquote. The following year, on the 8th of July in 2015, Ronnie Scott returned and, quote, a cowhide punctured with an aperture of three centimeters was located at the outer entrance to the passage as it survives in the present day a focal length of 8 meters to the rear chamber wall. This projected a solar disk, 10 centimeters in diameter. This dazzling image of the sun could be manipulated, including an illusion where it appears to be held in the palm of a hand. Looking back along the passage, dust particles revealed a beam of light traveling the length of the monument, and this would be further enhanced by water vapor or smoke. Unquote. Super cool. In the 1990s experiments we went over, the only possibility mentioned was a projected image of the sun, but here the landscape is projected, as well as the sun. This is the case for other tombs, too. The passage tomb of Cuin in northern Scotland, overlooking a bay, was also reconstructed by Scott. More experimental archaeology. Many human and dog bones were found here, eight human skulls and 24 dog skulls. Similarly, a camera obscura effect was achieved, although on the back wall it was a bit blurry. Holding something up closer to the hole to act as a screen for the projection made the image clearer. This worked with, you know, any, anything from animal skin, but, but also human bodies. It's, re it's really cool to think about how that would have been understood paleolithically, <laughs> images projected onto people's bodies. Another cool thing about this cairn is that, as I mentioned, it overlooks a bay. It's on a hill. But across the way is another hill, also with another cairn on it. It wasn't mentioned how that one's aligned. Um, I'd be curious to know. But anyways, since the cairn opposite is part of this image that's projected upside down on the inside of this cairn, Cuin, Scott says that maybe this was deeply meaningful in some way. He speculates, quote, There may also be a reference to the sphere of everyday life, as the low ground overlooked by Kewin Hill is the setting for the settlement of Stonehall. Unquote. Stonehall was the settlement that they lived in, uh, below the tomb, not on the hill. Scott also here mentions something obvious, but perhaps something that should be underlined. Camera obscuras project the movement of whatever is being projected. Right? So 
So it's more like cinematography than photography. So Scott paid attention to this while at QEen, and noticed that the projected image contained sun and cloud, which moved together, as well as birds when they were in the frame. And the team figured out that if people stood in a particular spot, an image of their figure would be projected. So maybe the uh, Neolithic people also played around with this. With a large enough diameter of the hole, details of the person could be seen in the image. So pretty sophisticated. Not just like a blurry image you can only see while squinting or anything. Scott continues by saying, quote, It was noted that, depending on the proximity of the subject to the aperture, its enormously elongated image could be projected across the floor of the monument. When in motion, this distorted form sometimes created the illusion of a figure moving through the passage and across the chamber. This proved to be especially disconcerting when an observer inside saw what they initially believed to be the shadow cast by a person standing beyond their peripheral vision, only to turn and see nothing but empty space." Unquote. So, in other words, there's all these possibilities, all sorts of possibilities for how this could have been used or how it could have sometimes been used, that you wouldn't just think up without being there and recreating the conditions. Something really cool about experimental archaeology. At Wideford Hill, another cairn in Scotland, an image was projected when reconstructed, and something really interesting is that the projected image directly hits a sub-passage carved into the wall. So the projected image has a kind of depth to it. Um, it hits the edges of this sub-passage, but also hits the back wall of the sub-passage. <laughs> it's a little hard to describe vocally, um, but I'm going to try just for, just for a sec. Like, like in the other cairns and tombs we were talking about, there's a long passage that the sunlight goes down, and these projected images also are projected down. But then at, at some point, there's a wall that the, that the image is projected upon, right? The, the thing with this one at Wideford Hill is that instead of there just being a wall, that wall has a tiny passage carved into it. So there's a rectangular entrance, and then the sub-passage continues in, into the into the earth for two meters. So, so what, what happens when they projected this image was that the image would kind of, there would kind of be a frame, um, like, a, like the entrance to the sub-passage would have some of the image around it on, the, on that wall, the first wall, but then deeper in, at the end of the sub-passage, the rest of the image would be projected there. So, yeah, it... it it gives the image depth. Um, yeah, sorry, sorry if that's not a good description. I don't know how to uh, describe it better. But yeah, feel free to send me a message if you're interested. I can send you the screenshot of the text. Anyways, moving on. On Vinkoy Hill, again in Scotland, again, projected images were created or recreated. But something unique here is that Scott noticed that the stones that the image is projected on are extremely bumpy and rough, meaning that the image lacks clarity compared to the other sites. But here's where it gets cool, um, and I'll let Scott describe. He says, quote, An intriguing result is that details such as hands or facial features remain clearly visible while the subject is moving, but become indistinct when they're still. It's possible to create the illusion of an ethereal human figure emerging out of the chamber wall, or of the wall itself, becoming alive. 
unquote. Scott reminds us to, you know, keep our biases in check when judging these images. Maybe the goal wasn't to create the most realistic, clearest image possible. Right? Maybe the goal was rather to capture some sort of amorphousness, some sort of, you know, less distinct thing, or, or maybe to show some sort of transformation. I keep being impressed at all these possibilities with this kind of image projection. Like, yeah, I, I wouldn't expect there to be so many different ways of playing around with this. Another kind is found at Dwarfy Stone, or Dwarfy Stain, sorry, where the projected image is really wide due to how the passage is built. It's, like, it's shorter, that's one thing. This wide image of the outside landscape is like a panorama that gets projected inside, which is super cool. We can also think back to Newgrange, that site in Ireland that had the roof box, the one that we started talking about at the beginning of this. Maybe the roof box was for the camera obscura effect. When summarizing all the passage tombs that he had observed, Scott makes the interesting point that every chamber they were able to create a camera obscura projection in, quote, were either asymmetrically arranged around the axis of the passage or featured niches, alcoves, or antechambers from which optical projections could be viewed without participants blocking the light, unquote. So again, just underscoring that thing that he discovered in the 90s at those other sites where, you know, it seems like the tombs are designed for the viewing of these effects. The researcher Morgan Saletta also studied megalithic monuments, but this time in the south of France, in Arles-Fontville, she found that they were designed so that on the equinox, when the sun sets, it shines into three of the five monuments, creating what Saleta calls, quote, a spectacular light and shadow hierophany, unquote. Hierophany is a cool word. Um, when, when it's used casually, it means just like a manifestation of the sacred. But in archaeoastronomy, it's used more particularly. Saleta says in archaeoastronomy, it's used, quote, in a more limited and specific manner to refer to special plays of light and shadow that reinforce the symbolic and sacred nature of a place or space, unquote. And I said three of the five monuments, but I should mention that one of those monuments is on a neighboring hill, a higher hill, and much larger than the four monuments on the lower hill. So, so out of those four, three are aligned with the equinox in a way that it shines into the structure, but all of these four are oriented to align with it on an east-west axis opening to the west. Interestingly, this is the opposite of the surrounding megalithic structures, designed to face the rising sun, not the setting sun. Furthermore, Saleta argues that the rock art at the site represents the sun's daily motion across the sky as well as two constellations, known to me as Orion and the Pleiades. Actually, something um, kind of annoying that I learned is that the word constellation refers to 88 specific groups of stars, whereas the more general word for a group of stars that isn't one of these 88 is called an asterism. So the Pleiades are an asterism, not a constellation, uh, for any pedants out there. They're, they're part of the constellation Taurus. Anyways. Side note, <laughs> doesn't matter. Saleta used a computer program to figure out if the position of these rock art asterisms and the choice of which asterisms to represent were important. Again, it's complicated, but she came to the tentative conclusion that the rock art of the stars 
might have represented the helical rising and setting of the stars, which is something that happens every year to a lot of stars. Heliacal rising being when the star first becomes visible in the east at dawn after a full rotation of the Earth. It's like it's when a star becomes the morning star, if you've heard that term before. Maybe a better way of explaining it is to say that a lot of stars, like, like Orion and the Pleiades, have a period of time when they're visible, depending where you are on the Earth, and a period of time when they're not. The first day that they're visible is called the heliacal rising, and the last day they're visible is the heliacal setting. The Sumerians, Babylonians, Egyptians, ancient Greeks, and others use the heliacal risings of certain stars to keep track of the timing of various agricultural activities. And Saleta thinks that the same thing might, might have been done in Neolithic France, too, and the rock art is a trace of it. Only a small amount of human remains were found at these sites, which means that they may have not been primarily tombs, like the others we've been talking about, but instead primarily somehow used by the living, probably tied to some sort of rig ritual or calendar keeping track of the seasons. Saleta uses the example of medieval churches which, yes, had a graveyard or some other way of being a resting place for the dead, but you wouldn't just call them a tomb, right? They have many other uses. Since the heliacal risings and settings of those two asterisms coincide with the time that was when many important crops were planted, Saleta thinks that maybe these megaliths were a sort of calendar imposing itself on the landscape, connected to whichever cosmology was dominant among the builders. Saleta also brings up the possibility that the sunlight shining through the narrow opening created a camera obscura. She came up with this hypothesis independently of Gatton and Scott and Phillips, which I like, it's cool, you know, it gives a little bit more credence to it, you know. The sunlight she saw enter the megaliths was not just sunlight, but a blurry projection of the sun. She says that with some simple tinkering, you could bring this projected image into sharper focus. Something cool she notes that brings us back to Newgrange in Ireland is that when the light shines through a small aperture in this way, the projected image is something called an airy disc. A-I-R-Y. This is because of how light diffracts, and it looks like the image of the light source, the circular sun, surrounded by concentric circles that fade the larger their diameter is if you can imagine that. Like, like one circle that's very distinct in the center, and then circles around that that gradually fade. Saleta points out that the rock art at Newgrange is similar, these famous swirls of concentric circles engraved into the rock. Other archaeological sites in the broad region, from the same rough time period, also have rock art in this shape, like in Gavrinus. Major question, of course, is what the similarities mean, since Newgrange and Gavrinus are not the only sites with similarities. We've talked about similarities of the tombs in Ireland and Britain, but similar megalithic alignment with celestial events occurs in a quite wide region, from Stonehenge in England to Almendres in Portugal and Gossek in Germany. So a major question is to figure out to what degree these were locally developed things, and to what degree there was diffusion throughout the broad region. Because, obviously, if you plant crops, you need to be aware of the seasons and stuff, and it makes sense to create some way of doing that in a sort of hands-off way. Like once the megalith is built, 
you just need to wait for the sun to be projected inside and for certain stars to be, you know, to heliacally rise and set. You don't need to, like, do math or anything. But on the other hand, I very much like the idea of, I think they're called culture regions, this idea that it's often underestimated how much contact there was between fairly small-scale communities like these in prehistoric eras. Like, humans are very social and curious creatures a lot of the time, so presumably in the thousands of years of the Neolithic, there were lots of people who traveled around, who got to know their distant neighbors and stuff, or just people who, you know, loved, loved walking around, who were wayward. I, I should, you know, maybe I didn't make that clear earlier. Um, that's another thing, but, you know, all these tombs, these are from the Neolithic period. So uh, the, the earlier stuff, the cave art we were talking about, that's from the Paleolithic. So this is much more recent, even though it's still quite old. A final thing Saleta brings up is something very cool. In quite a lot of the non-modern and non-Abrahamic cultures, certain celestial bodies or events are seen as beings or gods or persons or you know whatever the best translation out of those cultures is something that's tricky if this was true in the society that built these megaliths something that seems extremely possible then this projection of the sun is even deeper than we originally figured Saleta says quote indeed if we assume that the heavenly bodies were conceived as sacred and or as deities which seems almost certain, then the projection of the image of the sun into the interior of a monument then becomes not merely a hierophany, a manifestation of the sacred, but a literal theophany, or a manifestation of a deity, in this case, the solar deity. Unquote. Those are some cool words. Hierophany, a manifestation of the sacred, and theophany, a manifestation of a deity. But that's not the end of it. A common thing in religions that are polytheistic is the dichotomy of sky father and earth mother. This is found in cultures that weren't in contact with each other, so it seems like a thing that's been independently created multiple times. Or created, or however else you want to describe it. Created from the scientific materialist standpoint. Linguists have reconstructed Proto-Indo-European, the language that evolved into many of the languages that exist today, from Icelandic to English to Persian, as well as some of their mythology, and they found this dichotomy of the Sky Father and Earth Mother, words that are, you can look up, I, I think the pronunciations are unknown, but they're spelt very strangely. So, so I'm very curious if the people who made the megaliths at this place in southern France, Arles Fontville, spoke Proto-Indo-European, or whether they came before, whether they, they were influenced by that. Saleta notes that this gendered relationship between deities may have also been manifested by the Camera Obscura Equinox projection, especially in one of the megaliths with two side chambers, but something that could be the case in all the megaliths that project the sun. Uh, the rays of the sun projecting in, she says, could have been understood as phallic, the, the dick of the sky god, entering the earth, the tomb being also a womb, the womb of the earth mother. If this was the case, it would likely have been tied to either the rebirth of the dead, or, something that makes more sense to me, the rebirth of the seasons. Like, like the idea would be that, like, the next year is not something inevitable, but something that has to be birthed by the deities. But 
and the ancient people could witness this conception on the equinox. When the Earth Mother lets the rays of the Sun God enter her, and the Sky God shines himself onto the back walls of the Earth Mother, conceiving the new year and giving birth to spring, We can connect these camera obscura studies to a broader subfield in archaeology uh, besides archaeoastronomy called archaeooptics, which focuses on prehistoric people and how they experienced light, how they used light. The field was explicitly begun in 2005, but had many precursors. In fact, a major reason for its development were, were these camera obscura studies. Scholars were more and more realizing a mistake in much of archaeology, something neglected, overlooked. We associate the clear, definite, static light of electricity and museums and universities and libraries with being objective, right? Because obviously it's better to look at an artifact in clear light rather than light that's constantly battling shadows, but that's a big part of the Paleolithic experience of seeing. So. This has led to archaeologists overlooking light when reasoning about archaeological evidence, historically, but in the last decade and a half or so, there's been increased focus on rectifying this. One other thing to mention is that historically, even when archaeologists brought light into the analysis, there were certain areas that predominated or that, you know, it, it wasn't evenly spread out. Like how light relates to religious experiences is a big one. Like, it's, it's been studied a lot, in other words, before archaeooptics was developed. So it's fun. We've looked at archaeoastronomy, but there's archaeooptics, too. And often, these can kind of work in tandem, as we've, as we've already seen, right? Archaeoastronomy is how things from prehistory relate to the sun, moon, stars, seasons, etc. And archaeooptics is how light, often from these celestial bodies, was experienced by prehistoric people, and how it was involved in their experiences as an environment. The tombs and other cairns in Ireland and Scotland that we've been talking about were analyzed archaeoastronomically for decades before archaeooptics was brought in to kind of create a fuller picture or add more hypotheses, um, <laughs> you know, a fuller picture or in some cases a motion picture. It's really fascinating to think about light and prehistory at the same time, because obviously light is kind of a complicated thing, at least more complicated than it might appear when you just talk about it without thinking about it. Tim Ingold says, quote, Light is an energetic ray, a beam, the illumination of surfaces, an atmosphere. It's the shining of the sun, the moon, and the stars. It's a flickering flame, a lamp, or torch, the glowing embers of a fire, its whiteness, or a spectrum of color, its a release from darkness, an enlivening of the spirit, divine presence, the power of reason. Indeed, light can be all of these things, but only because, as we pass from one thing to another, we continually shift the grounds of definition. Light has no stable ontological foundation, 
not because in the present state of knowledge we cannot say for certain what it is, but because what it is depends on where we are coming from. Unquote. Light is like a chameleon, not really because it feels the need to transform, but rather because it's so central to our lives, so foundational, that different experiences and interpretations and definitions of it are arrived at in different circumstances. The definition of light and how light is approached are very different for the physicist and the cinematographer, for example. For the cave painter, different forms of light interact together. There's a firelight that provides the means of viewing the art, but there's also the light of light colors on the cave wall. Right, like, like dark colors, usually black, can provide shade, and light colors, usually red, can provide light, among other things. Ingold says, it's best to not try and figure out a single definition of light. That's not why he's bringing up its multitude of forms. Light gets its impact from being such a chameleon, by coming at us as we move through life in a variety of ways, just like we come at it in a variety of ways. And of course, light is necessary for one of the most important ways humans, or most humans, orient themselves in the world, right? Seeing. No light, no sight. According to one estimate, um, for those of us who can see well, 80 to 90% of the information of our surroundings comes from vision. Combining these myriad ways of understanding light to ancient art brings us to a question. Um, a question about the flickering light of the torch that the Paleolithic artist held. Is the light the flame or the rays coming out of the flame? Or is it both? Of course, we can say it's both, especially experientially. But if we take up the physics definition of light, that light is fundamentally, at bottom, a form of electromagnetic radiation, then light is what emerges from a source. It isn't the source itself. It's the electromagnetic radiation radiating from the torch, not the flickering flame itself on the torch. Taking up the physicist's view of light also means that we never see light. Light is what enables us to see, but we don't see light itself. Also according to this definition of light, light never flickers. Flickering references the behavior of the source of light, not light itself. The flame of the prehistoric torch flickers due to the movement of the person holding it, as well as the flame heating the air around it, causing atmospheric currents. Yet another thing the physics definition of light tells us is that when the Paleolithic artist walks slowly down the cave holding the torch, causing illumination to crawl along the cave wall beside him, the light itself isn't moving at this pace. The source of light is moving at this slow, meandering, walking pace, but the light itself is traveling at the speed of light very fast. So, in other words, we can see how the physics definition of light usually isn't the most useful thing when talking about cave art or art in general. The flickering, the slow-moving illumination crawling along the walls, these are the things that are important when understanding how Paleolithic humans experience the cave art. A lot of archaeo-optics is concerned with what the physicists would call the effects of light, not light itself. Obviously, I'll continue to call it light uh, for convenience, but also because light has multiple definitions, as we've gone over. But, but we should pause in this dichotomy between the physicists' understanding of light and the artists' understanding of light. 
because they're, you know, it is interesting. The former sees light as separate from the things we see, while the latter sees it as part of the things we see. The painter isn't trying to capture things in their painting, but rather how things appear to us by manipulating different colors of paint on a surface. So of course the painter's definition of light is largely what the physicist would call the effects of light. Anyways, back to Ingold. He says, quote, They work, of course, with a palette of colors, but colors for them are not just variations along a spectrum, but material ingredients squeezed from a tube which can be mixed to form the distinctive luster of the composition. This luster is the light of the painting. For makers of stained glass, too, light and color enter materially into their compositions, which would be literally lackluster without them. Likewise, the golden-crusted icon, an object of ritual devotion, would lose its luster without the light that causes it to glitter. For the maker, as for the devotee, the glitter of gold is not incidental, a mere byproduct of its physical irradiation. It is imminent to the thing itself and a manifestation of its power. The way the material responds to illumination, its glittering, announces gold for what it is. Light, in short, is constitutive of the material itself. Another example is traditional Japanese lacquerware, which was made to be seen in dim candlelight, its burnished surfaces glowing in the shadows. Placed in a museum case, under the glare of spotlights, it would lose its allure. Is the real thing, then, the wear by candlelight or under the illumination of the display? No condition of illumination is innocent. The painting, the stained glass window, the icon, and the lacquerware will look quite different under different conditions. But do these appearances offer partial views of a given reality? Or demonstrate that the reality itself is fluid and fickle, ever-changing with the light? Unquote. It's a really cool question to ponder, isn't it? I love the similar one, Would God See Color? What Ingold is asking is, is light part of things, or does the variety of light mean that things don't have a stable appearance? Everything, everything is able to transform somewhat. We saw earlier how the idea of objectivity, meaning one context, the context of clear, well-lit environments, led to certain things being neglected. Yeah, but I, I really love that in gold passage. I think it can lead to some pretty interesting, uh, like philosophical ponderings. Like, first of all, everything is kind of able to transform. And second of all, that there's no objective way to be lit. I mean, it's extremely cool. Things can be lit in flickering light to animate them, or colored light, or flashing light. Maybe. Okay, go with me here, but maybe you can combine this with another kind of trippy aspect of experiencing anything, that, that to experience anything three-dimensional, part of it has to be hidden at all times. Like, you can never see anything all at once, unless it's 2D. So, so for 3D objects, there's already that aspect of transforming going on, like phenomenologically. Anyways, um, Ingold notes how many words we have for types of light, like glitter, glow, flash, flicker, that, like words like those. A glow is quite different from a glitter. 
And Ingold makes an interesting point. What these words describe isn't really the thing that the modern physics definition of light describes. The difference between glowing and glittering is not determined by the form of the ray coming from the source and reflecting off the object onto our eye, something statically represented in physics books diagrams, you know, but it's determined by multiplying those diagrams, by multiplying those moments. In other words, the difference between glowing and glittering is determined by how the light and the object and the viewer interact over time. This is, this is a roundabout way to kind of get back to the point we made with Watch Tell. Certain forms of light, we talked about flickering, can introduce time into what our steady electric lights illuminate as a static scene. This, this sort of broadens that idea, like even under electric lights, things can glitter, which relies on time. An analogy can be made with sound, like, like how a bang is different than a rumble. Both rely on time. Ingold puts it this way, quote, We have as many words for the varieties of sonic experience as for their luminous counterparts, among them bang and rumble. One is sudden, brief, and intense, the other diffuse and sustained. Yet with both, the sound is registered not as a series of discrete auditory inputs transmitted from the source by way of vibrations in the medium, but as the modulation of the input over time. The bang and the rumble, if you will, have distinct modular curves. To listen is to align one's attention to the curve as it unfolds. So too with their luminous equivalents, the flash and the glow. We might witness the flash as a sudden streak, such as a fork of lightning, and the glow and the dying embers of a fire. But like the flame of the candle, they are manifestations of combustion, not vectors of transmission." Unquote. I especially love two things in there. Thinking of these forms of sound and light not as different ways the source transmits, discrete waves that reach the input of the observer, but, but instead like that, the modulation of the input over time. How, how the input moves over time, what, it, what it's doing as time unfolds. And I love that way to describe light specifically, saying that flames and lightning flashes and ember glow are all, quote, manifestations of combustion, not vectors of transmission, unquote. It's not how the glow or flash or flicker gets to us, it's how they go through time with us. In gold again, quote, light and sound as they erupt in our visual and auditory experience are the reverberations of a consciousness that, far from having itself closed off from a world out there, has opened up to the boundless expanse of sky. Take yourself out on a clear night to observe the stars. What do you see? Each star, you say, is like a pinprick of light in the night sky. It seems to you to shine, even to twinkle. This shining, this twinkling, goes on for as long as it follows the arc of your attention. Astronomers, of course, inform us that we see the stars thanks to radiant emissions that have reached us only after the lapse of hundreds of thousands of years. This light, they say, having traversed billions of miles of space, delivers the stars to us as objects of perception. Yet the stars we see are not distant astronomical objects. They are their lights, not sources of light. And they are right here, in our eyes, even as we, seeing, are at large in the visible cosmos. 
We and the stars, for a while at least, carry on our lives together, and therein lies their shining." Unquote. Very cool way to think about it. Stars don't twinkle. We twinkle the stars. Or, or maybe it's better to say, we twinkle with the stars. Or the stars twinkle via us. Ingold also talks about flames, specifically, and he makes a point that's easy to figure out. It makes very obvious logical sense, but it's something regarding the history of technology and light that I've never thought about before. But it's so obvious. Ingold specifically talks about medieval people, but this would definitely be the case for Paleolithic people as well. Pretty much any, you know, non-modern cultures or cultures before the 19th century. Um, in, a, in other times and cultures than my own and probably yours, this very technological society where electricity provides light and heat, in those societies flames were a much more common source for both light and heat. So often your heat and light comes from flames on earth or flames on the sun. Ingold says that for medieval people, and I'd assume others, quote, light and combustion were inseparable. Unquote. Just think about how that would change your relationship to light, right? It's always tied to fire. According to one study, one bright billboard advertisement in Las Vegas projects light that's equivalent to 40 billion Paleolithic lamps. Just to emphasize how different our post-widespread electronic technology, sensual, perceptive experiences compared to our ancestors. They lived in a world where heat and light were very much linked together, and a world where that light was paltry when compared to the vast, powerful, overwhelming darkness of, of night and cave. But specific to the Middle Ages is a really cool etymology. Um, just a side note here, but this etymology combines light, fire, and, you guessed it, trees. <laughs> uh, Ingold explains, quote, the rising flames of a fire twist and curl in response to atmospheric conditions, much as do the trunks of trees rising from the earth. The metaphor of the beam of light has its source in this comparison. The word referred originally to a living tree, a usage preserved in the names of such common arboreal species as white beam and horn beam. The archetypal incendiary analog of the tree trunk was the biblical columna. Luchis, the fiery pillar of light, by which, in the book of Exodus, the Israelites were guided on their way at night. Likewise, sunbeams were first depicted as flames, spewing out in all directions from a blazing solar fireball. But later, particularly as a scientific worldview took hold of popular conventions, 
the sun would come to be represented more abstractly, as a golden globe, and its beams were depicted no longer as flames but as radial rays, issuing in perfectly straight lines from the central point. It was at this time, too, that the beam of wood ceased to refer to the living tree and became, as presently, a straight length of cut timber. The flames were extinguished, the timber felled, the light dematerialized. The world was straightened out, geometricized. Yet the sun still shines as trees still grow. Perhaps that's why such a gulf is opened in modernity between light's physics and its phenomenology, and why we remain so unsure of what we really mean by it. Unquote. How cool is that? I never expected trees to be related to light etymologically. Something else cool about the Middle Ages in Europe is how, according to Ingold, they had a different relationship with shadow, too. Shadow is another thing tied up with light. Same with darkness. I guess, I guess shadow, shadow is a subset of darkness. Or, or maybe it's part of the play between light and dark. Ingold makes the point that darkness is like light and that it's hard to pin down. Partly, obviously, because the definition of dark we choose to go with is dependent on the definition of light. The easy definition is that darkness is an absence of light. Taking up the physics definition of light as electromagnetic radiation means that darkness is an absence of this radiation. But this is insufficient when talking about the phenomenology of the dark, when examining our experiences with it. Ingold asks, quote, How can we tell the difference between the liquid darkness of a moonlit night, the dense and claustrophobic darkness of the cave, and finally, the darkness that comes from closing one's eyes and sinking inexorably into oneself. The absence of optical stimulation no more explains these variations in these experiences of darkness than its presence explains differences in the experience of light. Unquote. Shadows are where light and dark mix together in a certain way. Just like with the light, Ingold says that modernity has changed our relationship to shadow. We can think back to how this episode started, talking about how the electric light of the 20th and 21st centuries has hidden an aspect of cave art to all but the most perspicacious. Ingold says, quote, Everything under the sun casts its shadow upon itself, on other things, and on the earth. Yet unlike things, shadows have no substance, and they come and go. Out of doors they flicker with the breeze, as it brushes the surfaces of leaves and makes them tremble. Indoors they flicker with the light source, whether it be candle, flame, or fire. They come and go, too, with the passage of clouds in the sky. Whenever the sun disappears behind a cloud, the shadow also vanishes. This is not, as is often thought, because the cloud blocks out the sun's rays, for were that so, every passing cloud would pitch us into the black night. What happens, in fact, is that these rays are dispersed in all directions by atmospheric vapor, with the result that the illumination of surfaces is evened out. Thus, areas that were in shadow when the sun is out actually brighten up when the sun goes in. What fades is the contrast. Are things easier to see, then, in or out of shadows? The default assumption under a regime of modernity is that shadows obscure rather than reveal. To see things as they really are, we insist, they must be brought out from the shadows. This is why we invest so heavily in the all-around, static illumination afforded by electric light, along with perfectly transparent glass and white walls. 
Medieval church builders had different priorities, however. They were masters of shadow, of surface convolutions and dark corners, hiding things in alcoves and vaults in such a way that they would appear to emerge only with the shining of the light, through windows or from lamps, only to fade back into the woodwork or masonry once the light had passed. Unquote. Ingold goes on to say that how we think of shadow really depends on how we are interested in objects. The shadowless glare of the electric lights is good for getting an objective view of an object's form, whereas environments more amenable to shadow allow for a better understanding of texture, because texture is seen by letting shadow fall in the cracks and bumps and divots of objects. You can even see this phenomenon with something as simple as paper. If you shine a flashlight on paper from, you know, directly above down onto a desk, perpendicular to the paper, you just see white. But if you shine a flashlight on paper at a very shallow angle, like, like hold the paper up and then shine the flashlight so it's just like the light skimming along the surface, as though your flashlight is the rising sun and the paper is the landscape. <laughs> we can put it that way. And if you do this, all of a sudden the paper comes alive in a way. You can start to see the little fibers that make up the paper. You can see the texture. Or another example, and I don't want to sound like somebody who hangs out in graveyards all the time, but I have occasionally. And there's a graveyard where I live that's quite old. So most of the tombstones are impossible to read in daylight. But if you go at night and shine a light at, at that angle, the same angle as the paper, you can read them. It's tough, but you can. By shining it at an angle like that, the smallest deviations in the smoothness of the surface are highlighted by shadow. And of course, with a flickering light, this happens in a dynamic way. Different deviations from smoothness become visible at different times as time progresses. Okay, I can't help myself. Uh, one more passage from Tim Ingold to end this section. Ingold says, quote, The weave of cloth, ripples of water, inscriptions in stone, blades of grass, all are picked out in these shadowy variations. Ever-changing with the light, shadows are ephemeral. To watch them is not to take the world in at a glance, but to join in its temporal unfolding, almost as one would with an orchestral composition. It is to reveal a world that is not laid out in fixed and final forms, but launched in perpetual motion. That this should come as a surprise is an index of the extent to which light has been co-opted in the service of the modern project of objectification, and lighting technologies to its architectural and artifactual realization. This has led, in turn, to light's abstraction from materials and its reduction, in scientific discourses, to radiant energy. But that is not what light meant to people of pre-modern times, that is, for the greater part of human history. Theirs was a light that, far from traveling in straight lines from source to recipient, shone, flickered, and glowed, flashed in lightning, and curled in the flames of a fire. It was the light of combustion, unfolding in experience, and it was perfectly real." Unquote. So archaeo-optics is a field that's trying to resurrect this understanding, this experience of light. And archaeo-optics is especially important for archaeologists because 
A big part of the development of humans is the development of controlled fire, something that seems to have begun in the Paleolithic. Something some of these archaeooptic researchers point out is that a lot of scholarly attention has been paid to certain aspects of the invention of fire, but the focus on light has usually been neglected. Like a lot of it focuses on the ability to cook food, the ability to have consistent warmth, um, especially how this was involved in the spread of humans to colder regions of the earth, stuff like that. They say that less study has focused on this new form of light, even though some really cool things can be uncovered when one does so. For example, an anthropologist named Pauline Weissner recently studied the of southern Africa, called Bushmen also, and how their conversations differed quite considerably, whether they were talking in the daytime or in the night around the fire. You might expect that the development of controlled fire would simply extend the day, right? But Weissner found that conversations in the day were primarily about productive, economic matters, or stuff like gossip having to do with social organization, like, oh my god, I think so-and-so's gonna marry, or why is he living with his aunt and not his parents? You know, stuff like that. But around the fire, the discussion involved, quote, stories and ceremonies relating instead to the wider functioning of social institutions and to the role of imagination in meta-societal organization, unquote. Of course, this is just one study, but some suggest from this that fireside gatherings, along with the mixture of imagination and shadows, must have played a big role in creating more complex social relations, more complex theories about reality and mind, more complex products of human imagination, all that good stuff. <laughs> Symbolic capacity is a good way to talk about this in a general way. And a certain level of symbolic capacity is seen to be the defining characteristic of humanity compared to other apes, to some. Another really cool thing that archaeooptics can shine a light on, pun intended, is how color shaped the lives of prehistoric humans. This is another aspect of cave art that leads to some interesting places. Color, of course, is part of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can see when the waves are between 400 and 700 nanometers. And the orders of the colors is Roy G. Biv, like the rainbow, but Roy G. Biv backwards, kind of. So, so red is at 700, and violet as it is at 400 nanometers. Those are the parameters of visible light. Our eyes perceive the colors with cones and light with rods. But here's where it gets interesting. Quote, in daylight, cones process visual information of color, photopic vision. As light levels fail, Rods combine with cones, mesopic vision, and the ability to detect colors begins to fail. And with darkness, we can only obtain visual information from rods, scotopic vision, at which point it is impossible to discern color. Unquote. In other words, color becomes harder to see the less light there is. And researchers have grouped this into kind of three forms of vision one with just cones, looking at all the colors. One where cones and rods are combined and colors are a bit harder to see, and one where it's just rods, and color is completely out of the picture. You can only see light. Dim lighting changes our experience of color, and caves are the ultimate dimly lit experience. It turns out that in dim lighting, when our rods and cones combine, we see warmer colors, colors like orange and yellow and especially red, so much so that some have described the experience of viewing cave art 
in the way that Paleolithic people do, as red-shifted, biased in favor of red. In a paper, Paul Petit, Stephanie Lelushenko, and Takashi Sakamoto suggest that this might be one reason why red ochre is used so often in Paleolithic artistic contexts. They say, quote, Processed red ochre is known from prehistoric contexts across the world, and its use can be traced back at least 100,000 years before present, for example, in Blombo's cave in South Africa. And 71 pieces of utilized red ochre were discovered in Kafsa Cave, Israel, dating to around 92,000 years before present. Use of the pigment has also been reported for Neanderthals, and perhaps for earlier hominins. Unquote. The part about Neanderthals is cool. We share with them the ability to create artificial light, to extend the day as one wished. They use fire too, in other words. But anyways, this brings up an interesting question. Why is red and black the most common colors used in rock art across the world? Is it just because materials to make those colors are easier to access, or is there a deeper reason? Petit and his colleagues think so, and they say some interesting things. They say, quote, Imagine standing at a cave mouth. A bright sun and a blue sky lights the green tundra, yet before you, a path disappears into the darkness of the deep cave. The stone lamp in your hand is already lit, but its light is insignificant under the sun. As you walk into the cave, the sunlight gradually fades, and the darkness becomes thicker and begins to surround you. The radiation of the lamp slowly becomes pronounced. Its flickering illumination casts moving shadows on the cave walls. Every single step takes you towards the world of red and black, separating you from the multicolored quotidian world. Now, you can see your surroundings only ambiguously. While your eyes have yet to adapt to the dark, you still remember the bright rays, vivid colors, and geometric certainties of the outside. As you look back, you recognize the decreasing sunlight, the darkness swallowing it up like the onset of the night. Unquote. I think this is extremely cool, and we can think back uh, a few hours now to when I was talking about how, you know, maybe caves are a sort of creation of a new space, you know, fully in 4D, uh, in a new way, right? It's, it's also a new space with a different color scheme than outside, typically. Something that, you know, it, it's obvious, but pointing it out in this way, I think, is really cool. Petit et al. continue, saying, quote, The artificial light available to Paleolithic explorers create in caves a world of red and black, colors shared by much of the surviving art pigments, provided by iron oxides, red, and manganese oxides and charcoal, black. Less frequently, yellow, a mixture of geothite and clay, and brown or purple, a mixture of hematite of ferrous oxide and manganese, were used. Blue and green are absent. It is possible that this red base, dichromatic vision, influenced Paleolithic cave visitors, perhaps providing an artistic inspiration. The integration of visible red and invisible black areas into cave art forms its dominant structure. Cave art is an art of red, light, and black darkness. Unquote. They, like others in this episode, also emphasized that the art of the deep caves and the whole environment was always lit by flickering light, and therefore was never static, never still, always moving. 
These are the two primary characteristics of cave art lighting in their view. Always in motion and always dim, causing this red shift. Due to these two factors, they say that we shouldn't view cave art as an attempt to reconstruct the world, but rather a space of its own, like what we were talking about earlier, that takes, quote, as its base the shifting perception of an unusual red-black-based space in which two-dimensionality and three-dimensionality blurred as darkness and shadow graded into visible cave walls and art. In short, darkness itself forms the landscape context of cave art, unquote. You know, I like that, but I would say four-dimensional, if you remember from earlier. The fact that cave art lighting was so different from the lighting of the day means that we should see the cave as another world, a world in which you can't recreate the world of the above ground, the world of daylight. And again, we come back to that question. If art was the same, whether it was done above the ground or deep within the cave, then why would you want to go deep into a treacherous cave, <laughs> you know, over this hard-to-access terrain and narrow passages and stuff, if you could do the same thing above ground. Maybe it makes more sense to view this very sensually different world as a different world. Beyond the perpetual dynamism and the red shifting, there are other things that make it distinct, like the fact that the lamps are so feeble that you can't see that far in front of you, meaning you don't really have that sense of distance that vision usually provides. The darkness is sort of pressing, pressing in from all around even quite close to you. Even some of the cave paintings, some of the most famous ones, are too large to be seen all at once by a reconstruction of a Paleolithic lamp. Like, like some are like four meters long on the cave wall, something that the photos of them don't often relay to the viewer. This adds another aspect to how prehistoric people experienced the light in the caves. If some of the figures on the walls couldn't be seen all at once with one lamp, they would slowly emerge and then fade back into darkness as one walked alongside the cave walls. Well, that's one option, but there's also evidence that sometimes lamps would be placed along the cave at particularly important places. Important either artistically or navigationally. A little bit ago, I quoted Petit, Lelushko, and Sakamoto saying, quote, it is possible that this red base, dichromatic, two-color, vision, influence Paleolithic cave visitors, perhaps providing an artistic inspiration. The integration of visible red and invisible black areas into cave art forms its dominant structure. Cave art is an art of red, light, and black darkness." Unquote. However, there's one other possibility that the authors raise that kind of cuts against this idea of the cave being a different world, a, a different space, because it's so different to the world above ground. Because there is one experience that we all have of redness, of a red-shifted environment. It happens roughly twice daily, depending on weather. Sunrise and sunset, right? Maybe the red-shifting of the flame in the lamp made the artists analogize with the experience they have of the birth and death of each day. Maybe, maybe it was some sort of somehow resonating with that. Petit et al. say, quote, In evolutionary perspective, one might draw a correlation between the red-biased visual condition of a deep cave environment and the natural setting of sunset and sunrise. When the sun is near the horizon, its light passes through a thicker atmospheric layer than when it is higher in the sky, and only long wavelength light is able to pass through. 
thus the impressive red skies. According to Oriens and Herwegen in 1992, this natural red light could have provoked an emotional reaction among our early ancestors, which became hardwired into the brain. As our ancestors were diurnal animals, sunsets may therefore have induced feelings of uneasiness, provoking them to prepare for nighttime, whereas sunrise offered reassurance. According to this argument, red light was originally the most essential cue for survival. Unquote. So I think that's really cool and something I haven't thought about before when thinking about like natural things that all humans in all times have to experience, right? Like we often think about stuff like day and night and the moon and the sun and stars, stuff like that. But people don't usually include the redness at the start and end of most days. Well, I guess not everywhere has sunrises and sunsets most days. Are places that are uh, very cloudy, so, <laughs> or places that are um, circumpolar. Anyways, I quoted them saying, "Darkness itself forms the landscape context of cave art," which is interesting and can lead us in a new direction. I think what this means is that because of how feeble the prehistoric lamps were, they could only light a small sphere that quickly dissolves into darkness so small that only part of the wall art can be seen at once. This means that always, the light is surrounded by darkness. Darkness plays an essential role in cave art. The lit area is the figure and the darkness is the ground. And there is a growing amount of work analyzing the prehistoric experience of darkness. In a paper called Darkness and the Imagination, the Role of Environment in the Development of Spiritual Beliefs, Holly Moyes and her co-authors hypothesized that darkness played a key role in the development of spiritual and magical thinking. Because, they say, darkness can spark the imagination and transcendental thinking that it seems like spiritual beliefs spring from, from the scientific materialist perspective at least. The question Moyes et al. asks specifically is whether human reaction to light and its absence is completely culturally mediated or whether there are some universalities. They conclude the latter. Seasonal affective disorder is a widely known thing that seems to back up that hypothesis, right? People get full-on depressed from like a seasonal lack of light. I wonder, I wonder if that's a universal thing. Like, do the Inuit have seasonal affective disorder? Like when, uh, when darkness is literally just night for like months? Hmm. But... But what, what Moyes at all are saying, um, they're not saying that human reactions to light are completely universal and don't vary at all, at all with culture, of course, but what they're trying to figure out is if darkness provides a similar enough experience among all humans to be a common denominator for the development of spiritual beliefs. Ethnography shows us that often dark and poorly lit environments are the ones chosen for rituals and magic and meditation. Quote, 
When we view ritual cave use from a global perspective over time, a number of patterns emerge. Caves are associated with nether worlds, the dead, fertility, and the emergence of primordial humans. David Lewis Williams and his colleagues have argued for years that art painted or engraved onto cave walls directly relates to shamanic trance, transformation, and otherworldly imagery. Caves are often associated with rain and rain-making, and many cultures consider them to be oracles or places of great power. Today, we often think of caves as pilgrimage places associated with the major world religions, but indigenous people and local communities the world over continue to practice ritual traditions rooted in the deep past. Unquote. Of course, caves are often used throughout the world as burial locations as well. Moyes et al. wonder if the sensory deprivation provided in the natural world, only by caves, really, um, both darkness and silence, could have provoked, could have been causally involved in the birth of spiritual beliefs. For a definition of spiritual beliefs, they focus on the otherworldly aspects of spirituality. They follow an interesting observation by a scholar named Pascal Boyer, who said that, quote, the best and most widely accepted spiritual concepts have structures that violate some ontological categories or expectations about the world, but preserve others. Unquote. Which is interesting, um, although super abstract, and he admits that it's hard to figure out which ones will be violated and which ones will be preserved. But I think it's cool to think about it like that, because you know, obviously violating every ontological category and expectation from the world would lead to like meaninglessness, but not violating any wouldn't be religious, really. It's interesting. Anyways, the point is that, from the scientific materialist perspective, you need something that sparks this leap in imagination, the imaginative capacity to violate ontological categories and expectations. In fact, many people point to imagination as a thing, or one of the main things, that sets humans apart from the other animals. But usually this focus on the imagination doesn't take environmental aspects into account, instead coming up with theories like Imagination comes from dreams. Moyes and her co-authors want to treat the environment, especially the dark silence of caves, as causative agents, rather than just background or something that imaginative humans can take advantage of. And it's not just the darkness and silence either. There's other aspects, like how there's a lack of distance even if you could illuminate it well, because even if you have bright electric lights in caves, caves are almost always narrow and twisting and winding. It takes a lot of physical effort to move in them, and in the low light, also a lot of touching and groping. Moyes and her team did a study where they asked questions about supernatural thinking in well-lit rooms and a room that was almost dark, very poorly lit. And people were 11% more likely to respond positively to at least one of the questions about the supernatural in the darker room. Moyes et al. think that darkness might both create increased uncertainty and increase the capacity for imagination because the mind is receiving less input from the visual sense, the predominant sense for most humans. They cite many studies about how sensory deprivation, as well as social isolation, cause hallucinations, something that seems pretty 
pretty cross-cultural and trans-historical, at least from the available data. As far back as 1760, with the naturalist Charles Bonnet, have scientists been studying this? Bonnet wrote about his grandfather, about 90 years old, who had become more and more blind due to cataracts, and began seeing all these visions. People, animals, other figures, even though he was fine in other regards, cognitively, so it didn't seem like he was just generally losing his mind or whatever. This effect became known as Charles Bonnet syndrome. Kind of rude, <laughs> he should have named it after his grandpa in my opinion. Uh, but anyways, that's the first instance, but there, there's tons of further studies about this sort of thing, along with reports from people who were in very, very uniform, very boring, monotonous environments, like people, people lost at sea, for example. You know, in other words, environments that had very little novel visual input. Another big thing that spurred scientific investigation into this was when prisoners of war were kept in isolated spaces and also saw hallucinations, and maybe even were brainwashed by these techniques, according to some. So obviously, militaries began pumping money into studies about this sort of thing to see exactly what could be done with this. Moyes et al. say about these studies that, quote, despite variable results based on set, preconceived notions, setting, and methodology, there is agreement that effects of sensory deprivation cause changes in perception due to events in the visual cortex, which may include hallucination, a variety of visual imagery, and show deficiencies in visual motor coordination, changes in size and shape constancies, color perception, apparent movement, loss of accuracy, tactual, spatial, and time orientation, and a variety of other changes, unquote. They're, they're going into all these studies and stuff just to back up their hypothesis that the peculiarities of caves compared to other natural environments, the lack of visual stimulation and stuff, could have been involved in the spark that led to religious thinking among humans. Moyes and her colleagues continue, saying, quote, The physical properties of caves, particularly darkness, influence psychological responses, including perceptions, cognitions, emotions, and behaviors. Common experiences and meanings lead to similar use of cave dark zones as sacred or ritual spaces that may in turn function as venues for intentional semiotic communications with or about the supernatural. Thus, our experiment supports the hypothesis that cave dark zones provide an affordance for magical or supernatural thinking and action. The concept of affordance was introduced by the perceptual psychologist J.J. Gibson in 1977 to refer to the fact that objects and environments afford certain human actions depending on a mutual fit between the objective properties of the objects or environments and the physical capabilities of the person. For example, a rock provides an affordance for sitting to the degree that it is a solid, flattish object of the right height and width for a human body. An opening in a canyon provides an affordance, as does an entry into a cave, to the degree that it is high and wide enough for human bodies, and it can be visually identified by eyes that pick up electromagnetic radiation in the proper portion of the spectrum. Caves offer humans an environment 
that is morphologically complex and without light. They often do not allow upright posture or easy locomotion, leading readily to spatial disorientation. The dark zones of caves do not provide good affordances for human habitation, but they do offer good affordances for hiding, for ritual, and for experiencing alternate mental states of reality. They offer a shadowy and unusual environment that's different from the surface world, an environment that inspires mystery or flights of the imagination. Montello and Moyes in 2012 call this transcendental affordance, which refers to the numinous properties that caves provide." Unquote. Sometimes this darkness is more than just environment, though. Sometimes darkness becomes a figure, or at least more heavily involved in the art than mere background. For example, in El Castillo Cave in Cantabria, Spain, there's a work called The Bison Man, which is a bison standing upright, like a human, on two feet, painted onto a stalagmite coming up from the ground. But the insane part is that if you shine a light from a particular place, the stalagmite itself makes a shadow on the wall behind it that looks exactly like an upright bison itself. There's a really cool video of it on YouTube. I'll, uh, I'll link to it. Another example of darkness use is something found in many caves where it looks like painted animals are emerging from the darkness, from shadowed corners or from dark cracks in the wall. Some examples of this are two red deer at La Pasiega, or a horse in the Axial Gallery of Lasseau. Kevin Conti and William H. Walker analyzed two Pueblo rock art sites in southeast Utah where shadows are used in interesting ways. They analyzed them in an interesting way too, saying that archaeoptics should be combined with something called object agency theory. This is a theory that emerged in the 90s, and it says that objects can cause things. In every culture, they, quote, hinder or enhance activities through their performance characteristics, unquote. And in many, they're seen as animated, they're seen as alive. Performance characteristics is an interesting phrase. I'm not quite sure what it means, but the way I understand it is that anything that exists, exists in a certain form exists in a certain way, which is in a style, whether or not it's meant to be in a style. If you exist, you exist in a certain way. And this is known as style when it's on purpose, but really, everything has a style. This is a way of thinking that involves affect and is part of like post-humanism and stuff, I think. But we can also think of affordances, those ones I mentioned a little bit ago with J.J. Gibson. How many things kind of ask you to do something with them? Like, forks kind of ask you to stab things with them, even to people who've never seen a fork before, just by being in that sort of form. Conti and Walker suggest that this way of thinking is especially good for archaeoptics because they are, there are many animistic cultures, like the indigenous cultures of the American Southwest that they focus on, who animate clouds, rain, rivers, and springs, and, quote, Interactions with things often take the form of social relationships. Land, tools, and animals 
have names and histories and are treated more like persons or beings rather than inanimate objects, or in the case of animals and plants, natural resources." Unquote. So they think that object agency theory can combine with animistic cultures and analysis of them in interesting ways. Here they describe in more detail um, some of the beliefs of what's known as the American Southwest and the indigenous people there. They say, quote, in the ethnographically known American Southwest, a wide range of social relationships occur between human and non-human beings, such as Katsina spirits, personified forces of nature, sun, moon, winds, animals, birds, bears, snakes, and ancestral cultural heroes, such as the spider grandmother and the war twins. In the mythology of various Pueblo cultures, there's a series of divine beings who contributed to the creation of the world, including guiding people up to the present world from three worlds below this one. The warrior twins are two brothers that figure prominently in these oral histories by forming canyons, springs, lakes, rivers, mountains, and other features. Some of these events are memorialized, as when they turned monsters into stone outcrops. The warrior twins also introduced the people to farming, helped to create the organization of plant and animal lives, and encouraged people to settle in villages and establish their kinship and ceremonial organization. Katsinas are generalized ancestors. They contain the soul stuff of past hoppies, but no specific person is associated with a particular Katsina. Katsina spirits live half of the year in the world below this one, returning early in the new year before the planting season, and leaving at the end of the summer, when the annual summer rains come. Their essence can take many forms, most commonly moist things, such as clouds, rain, mist, or snow. However, they can enter the village when manifested by a Katsina initiate, who wears an elaborately constructed costume that includes a Katsina mask and various kilts, sashes, leggings, moccasins, and rattles. Each piece contributes its animate power and facilitates the transformation. As Descola notes, the underlying animate essence found in these different non-human beings allows them to communicate with each other and people, and in this case they work together to create a Katsina. The animate power of the human dancer, his mask, and parts of his clothing, e.g. mineral and plant dyes, cottonwood, douglas fir, water reeds, woven cotton, maize stalks, gourds, copper bells, turtle shell, deer skin, rabbit fur, fox fur, coyote fur, bird feathers, form a machine of sorts that transforms a person into an ancestor that dances and sings for the community. Other Southwestern spiritual forces can inhabit rocks and rock art images and communicate with people through sympathetic magic in a living landscape of non-human beings." Unquote. So the Pueblo peoples believe in Katsina spirits, these generalized ancestors, and these ancestors can often inhabit rocks and rock art. It's really cool. In the traditions of the people of the American Southwest, sometimes particular rock formations are beings with souls and intention that were made when the world was made. Sometimes animals were carved into the rock, and the spirits of the real animals would enter the images. Sometimes stones shaped like war clubs contain the spirits of warriors from the past. Sometimes rocks are carved in a particular way 
to release spiritual power. Sometimes rocks are chipped off into small pieces and worn as protective amulets. Seems like rocks are a big part of the culture there, in other words. And based on the pictures of Utah I've seen, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. In the rock art sites that Conti and Walker analyzed, they found some really cool things. At one site, at a certain time of day, light enters, shining onto a wall that has a human-like figure and a few unclear figures drawn on it. And gradually, this light gets larger and larger until it covers the rock art and it looks very much like a bear. This is clearest right before spring and fall equinoxes. Conti and Walker call it a spirit bear and say that the cave was probably related to the Pueblo twin war gods. At the cave, there's also a large human-like face carved into the wall. They say, quote, In Pueblo oral traditions and ritual practices, there's a convergence between warfare, the twin war gods, and bears, unquote. Nearby, there's another performance, this time not light but shadow, a shadow on a boulder that slowly transforms into a bear. Also nearby is a petroglyph of a bear paw associated with warfare and rain, which at a certain time of day is touched by the tip of what Conti and Walker call a light dagger. You know, like a, like light shaped like a blade, if you can imagine that. They, they talk more about the importance of the bear in Pueblo societies, saying, quote, Pueblo bear societies use power associated with bears to heal illnesses and combat witchcraft. Bears are believed to be human ancestors whose power can be petitioned for curative purposes. At Zuni, shamans who can call the bear can reunite with their bear ancestors after death. The Hopi believe that direct communication with a live bear is not possible, but do say they can communicate with the dead bear's spirit through prayer. Zuni and Karasin bear doctors claim to access power, allowing them to turn into bears. Zuni also believe bears can willingly transform into humans. In the Hopi story, Gambling Boy Married a Bear Girl, a female bear performs human transformation and possesses the ability to perform the resurrection of her dead human husband. To us, this shadow's transformation at the beginning of spring appears to depict these sorts of powers and transformations." Unquote. We'll talk more, more about bears in a future episode in this series, so keep this example in mind. A final shadow performance at this site is boulders stacked in such a way that they project a shadow of two faces, one small and one large, onto the wall behind them. The boulders have holes in them so that when the sun rises, the shadow faces have eyes. Extremely cool. Another light dagger also uh, marks equinoxes. At another site, a petroglyph of a large horned serpent looks like it's going into a crack, a crack that has coming out of it a projection of rock that casts a shadow of a large face in the morning and a small face later in the day which emerges right when the large face disappears, and which Conti and Walker interpret as the twin war gods of the myths of this region. Same with the earlier projection of two faces, two shadows. These performances of shadows and light are the final form of Paleolithic animation. 
at least for now. I want to end by returning to Mark Azema, but first we have to talk about one of the most famous sites of cave art in the world. On the 18th of December, 1994, Jean-Marie Chauvet, Elliot Brunel Deschamps, and Christian Hilaire were exploring caves in the Ardèche Valley in southern France. They felt breeze coming out of some rubble, so they moved the stones to create a passage through, and Deschamps went in. After 30 or so feet, he found himself on a ledge overlooking a chamber. They went to their car and came back with a ladder to descend into the chamber. They were amazed to find paintings of animals like a mammoth and a rhinoceros, handprints, dots. They went further in and found themselves face to face with the skull of a cave bear positioned on a rock, what some call an altar. Deeper still, they find lion heads. They say, quote, Alone in that vastness, lit by the feeble beam of our lamps, we were seized by a strange feeling. Everything was so beautiful, so fresh, almost too much so. Time was abolished, as if the tens of thousands of years that separated us from the producers of these paintings no longer existed. It seemed as if they had just created these masterpieces. Suddenly, we felt like intruders. Deeply impressed, we were weighed down by the feeling that we were not alone. The artists' souls and spirits surrounded us. We thought we could feel their presence. We were disturbing them. Unquote. They found that the cave extends 400 meters into the hillside, and found that humans weren't the only ones who'd been inside throughout the many centuries. Cave bears had hibernated there, you can see their scratch marks on the cave walls and ground. Uh, maybe another form of cave art. Their skulls, like the ones the cavers encountered, and other bones are found in the cave, along with some ibex and wolf bones. And, of course, there are paintings and engravings on the walls, most commonly depicting lions, mammoths, and rhinoceroses. And this is interesting because there isn't much evidence that these animals were hunted very often. Also, in later periods of cave art, these three animals don't take center stage as much. Which reminds me, later periods. Um, later analysis by Jean-Claude showed that this cave, Chauvet, was inhabited by humans in two different periods, one stretching from 32,000 years ago to 30,000 years ago, um, but perhaps even earlier. In 2020, researchers dated an art piece to 36,500 years ago. Um, but anyways, this, this earlier period is when most of the images were made, but then there was another period of human habitation from 27,000 to 25,000 years ago, but the evidence of this later period is mostly just charcoal and torch marks rather than art. All in all, once people had thoroughly analyzed and explored the cave, they found that Chauvet Cave has hundreds of paintings of animals of at least 13 species. And, you know, the interesting part is that along with herbivores like horses, aurochs, mammoths, that are found in other Spanish and French caves a lot, Chauvet has a ton of predatory species, like cave lions, leopards, bears, and cave hyenas, 
which is pretty unique. Mark Azema has analyzed Chauvet Cave using his movement-focused, animation-focused lens. He notices movement of the type that we've been talking about, like, like there's a bison with eight legs, a deer with eight legs, a rhino with many horns, successive horns that could be multiple individuals, but could also be a single individual moving. Either way, it shows movement. Similar with successive images of leaping cave lions. However, the truly incredible part of his interpretation comes from what he saw when he zoomed out and saw Chavez Cave holistically as a whole. Of course, we can't be certain about this, like anything here, but Azema thinks it's possible that that's how Chavez was meant to be appreciated as a whole, larger than the sum of its parts. Azema says it's possible that Chavez functions similarly to the Egyptian Book of the Dead, an ancient Egyptian funerary text that has magical spells intended to assist a dead person's journey through the underworld and into the afterlife. But it's not a codified book. There isn't a single book of the dead. This term refers to these spells that were written by priests for over a millennia. But the part that's relevant to why Azema is bringing it up is because it was often written on the walls of tombs and pyramids. You know, it kind of was written on walls to create an atmosphere. So he's wondering if Chavez was kind of similar. Azema looked carefully at the end chamber, the most famous part of Chavez. As you enter from the rear chamber, he says, if you're attuned to it, you can see a narrative unfolding along the walls from the left to the right. The first thing you see on your left is three or four lions on the wall about as big as they would have been in real life. They all have their heads bowed and their ears pinned back, which is how they appear when they're on the lookout for prey. Then there's the lion panel, one of the most well-known parts of Chauvet. It shows a group of cave lions chasing a herd of bison, their, their ears pulled back in a way that shows aggression. Some seem to be growling, others roaring. Azema says, quote, The heads are stretched forward and the mouths open more and more, distorting the whole appearance of the head as the predators approach their prey. Unquote. These two scenes are the main part of the hunting sequence depicted on the walls, a narrative, according to Azema. Around, there are more minor scenes, like a young bison facing off against two lions, separated from the herd, lions watching a bison of another panel, a female rubbing herself against a male, something done before mating, and, most dramatically, a lion ripping off the horn of a bison and gnawing on it. Azema says that this sequence follows a logic that puts it in a narrative, into time, and it might have been analogous to how people in cathedrals look at scenes from Jesus' life or the Bible on the walls. Quote, Composed of all these sequences, the graphic story depicting the cave lion is linked to reproduction and hunting, essential moments in the life cycle of this predator and of man. The very symbol of life would be expressed through the presence of females, obvious signs of fertility present near the lions." Unquote. Combined with flickering firelight, shamanic hallucinations, chanting, drumming, and other forms of rhythm and music, the first movie theater might have been built over 30,000 years ago, and it might have been holy 
A place where the animals the prehistoric people encountered every day, the animals they lived with and against, were miraculously brought back to life.